Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Who's Who 1989 Annuals, out member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? You believe this is it? This is the last, like, regular-sized, regular Who's Who that we're ever going to cover. We're done. We, we finished it. This is it. But uh, uh, comic book form, perhaps, sir. But the next big journey, the next great adventure, the next undiscovered country <laughs> is Star Trek. Now, you know, which will come out next month. We're going to do a couple issues of Who's Who. Well, I shouldn't say we're going to. You're going to do a couple issues of uh, Who's Who Star Trek. Then I'm going to do a couple episodes on, or maybe three, I don't know, on Who's Who and the Legion. We're going to have some co-hosts flying with us there. But then, then the real magic will begin in about six months, folks, when we've got Star Trek and Legion behind us. And Rob and, and I have recharged our batteries, and we are raring to go. We are going to go dive headlong into the Loose Leaf Format. Oh, so excited about that. I cannot wait. The highly, anticip- you, the highly anticipated. We've gotten a lot of requests for, like, not requests, but, like, people are, like, dying for us to get to it. I'm dying for us to get to it because, honestly, the annuals are a little bit of a slog. I mean, a bit. not... <laughs> not like I mean, I don't mean the, the these episodes necessarily. I mean, talking to you always is. But, yeah, like, well, you know, as we discovered today, we'll be going through here and we're like, and here comes another regular human! <laughs> that kind of thing. Wally so. West's mom. <laughs> <laughs> that was last month. <laughs> this time it's like, questions contacted the police department. <laughs> Ooh. So, but uh, but we're going to have some fun with it, folks. There are some really good ones in here, though, too. There's some exceptional ones in here. Uh, we're going to we're going to follow the same pattern we did last time, which is where we're going to finish going through the annuals from 1989. We're going to do them in release order. So we'll start with the ones that came out earliest uh, on, the, on the back half of this and get all the way to the end. And uh, it's going to wrap up with Detective Comics with a whole bunch of classic Batman villains. So that's a really fun way for it to go out. I'm looking forward to that. But about the loose leaves, folks, we've been talking about this probably since the first episode, or at least I have. It is now time. We're here. I need you to write in in the comments and tell me now how you organize your loose leaf who's who. <laughs> if you've written to us before, you're probably okay. I, I've sort of like kind of copied those down, but I can't promise I got them all because, first of all, I'm not perfect, as shocking as that might be. And second of all, I, I forget a lot of things. But anyway, uh, write in how you organize your who's who. For example, I will tell you how I organize my loose, my loose leaf binders. I had everything in alphabetical order by the character. If they were called like Captain Adam, it was by the C, not the A, that sort of thing. You know, but if it was just a person's last name, like let's say it was Jimmy Olsen, it was under O for Olsen. Then, oh, here's the beauty of it. I took all the Legion entries and put them together, and I took all the Vertigo entries and put them together. Why I decided those two need to be separated out, 
I can't tell you, but that's what I decided to do <laughs> back in the early 90s. So uh, that's how mine's organized. I would love to hear how yours are organized. And I know most of your binders are gone. I'm so sorry, buddy. We are going to have a weeping party for you. And I do mean that because it's really unfair that yours got thrown away. But how are yours organized, Rob? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when I had them, I don't own them anymore in paper form, but I just kept them the way they were in the books, uh, the way they were issued, because that's how they're shown on the covers. Oh, wow. Really? That's yeah. cool. Yeah. It's it's going to be a royal pain for me to get to the right individual entries. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to have to get out the cover, look at all the ones on the cover, flip to them, pull all those out, and get all those. And then one, one of the issues, and I don't remember which one. If you guys at home know, please let me know. One of the issues has a mistake on the cover. I don't remember which one it is. I would love to know so that when we get to it, we don't miss an entry. That would be nice. But anyway, talked a lot about these. It's about six months away. But the reason why this is important is because the feedback from this episode that we're doing right now, when you put all your comments in here, you're not going to hear that feedback for six months, folks. Because when we do Star Trek, it's going to be about Star Trek. And when we do Legion of Superheroes, it's going to be about Legion of Superheroes. So the feedback from this episode will be read on the first episode of Who's Who uh, the no, it's not the Definitive Director. What's it called? Who's Who in the DC Universe. That's what it's called. Right. Who's Who in the DC Universe, Episode 1. That's where we will read it. Oof. Right, because we figured out that with the way the shows are changing, if we just kept following our normal trajectory, we would be doing this feedback in Star Trek and then Star Trek feedback in Legion, which just yeah. didn't make any sense to anybody. So well, that's how we're going to do it. Yep, absolutely. So, But I've talked about this quite a bit. We probably should get to our sponsor, folks. This episode of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. What you got, Rob? Uh, well, since we talked about that there are a lot of really cool Bat villains in this, I picked something that has a lot of cool Bat villains. And that is uh, Batman, the Golden Age Omnibus Hardcover, Volume 2. It's by Bill Finger, Bob Kane, <coughs> Jerry Robinson. Uh, it features a absolutely <laughs> Gitching. Yeah, what? You doing a hernia check there? Yeah, what yeah, was that? Was. Uh, never mind. Okay, uh, and it features a wonderfully Ginchy new cover by Darwin Cook. It's just beautiful, Batman and Robin and their Batmobile. And it features reprints of Detective Comics 57 through 74, Batman 8 through 15, and World's Finest 4 through 9. It features appearances by the Penguin, the Joker, the Two-Faced, the Scarecrow, and many more. The normal price, $75. It's 768 pages. Oh, my gosh. This thing. Then in-stock trades, in stock trades price is $41.25. That's 45% off. So if you bought this and just one little tiny book, you'd be over 50, and then you'd get free shipping. So Sweet. This Sweet. This is a perfect book. It's, it's, a, it's worth it for the Darwin cover alone. It's so beautiful. Wow, that sounds fantastic. That is really cool. I picked one uh, tied into you know something we're covering today as well. I picked Justice League International Volume Four trade paperback. This collects issues number twenty three through twenty five of Justice League International, and then when it jumps to the new title named Justice League of America, twenty six through thirty. So basically, you get issues twenty three through thirty. Uh, it's it is one hundred ninety two pages, and this is Keith Giffen and J M D Mateus. Artwork by Kevin McGuire, Mike McCone, and Bill Willingham. Yeah, Bill Willingham as an artist, folks, and. Um, Normally retails for $17.99. Right now it is 45% off, so it's only $9.89. Now the whole reason I picked this is because this is when Justice League International made the leap to becoming two series. It went from just being the America series to being America and Europe. 
being published at the same time. Now, this focuses on the America side of it, but you do see everyone come together in issue 24. You see them decide it's time to splinter off. And since uh, the Just League International is going to be the first one we're going to touch on, I thought that seemed very appropriate. And in case you're wondering, if you want to read along, there might be a podcast you could listen to. It's kind of connected to this. Just saying. So, folks, both are awesome uh, selections, and for these and all your uh, trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Go up to their Contact Us button when you order, and be sure to drop them a note and let them know that you heard about them on the Fire & Water podcast. So, we'd appreciate it. Now, uh, if you are going to be on the social medias, which many of you are, as we will find out in the feedback section, uh, please use our hashtag, which is pound F. W podcasts, or if you're on Twitter, you can actually tag us with at the same thing, FW podcasts and Facebook. Of course we have a Facebook page and all that, but that will make it easier for us to find you for us to read your comments, interact with you guys. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of back and forth this last episode uh, or issue, I should say. And uh, so would love to interact with you guys further and have you guys argue with one another. Cause they're kind of some not heated debates, but some really back and forth this last time. Now, Rob, why don't you tell them where they can leave uh, the, the feedback, the, the comments on our website? Over on our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. That is where most of the action goes on. I think there was 43 comments from this last episode. Yeah, the last one was big, yeah. And only 70% of those were from Jeff Nettleton. So, <laughs> um, well, in terms of volume, it was 90% Jeff Nettleton, but in terms of just number of comments. What else can they find on our website, Rob? You can find uh, images from these books uh, in the gal separate gallery post, so you can uh, follow along with some of the entries that you we're going to be talking about. And the interesting thing about this is we, we're making a bit of an exception with the annuals. We're actually posting all of the entries. Normally we don't do that. We just do a smattering. But since, the, since these were never collected under one cover, we felt like it's kind of okay to do that. So you will find all of the ones from that we're going to talk about in this episode under, on the page. So check them out. With that, I guess it's time to get into this. So we're in a bit of a transition, folks. You know, the classic who's who styling with the yellow dots and the, you know, powers and weapons and all that in the in the surprint. Some of those elements have survived. For example, the little the little bars that say personal data and history and powers and weapons. That kind of stuff has survived. But we've lost the yellow dots. Those are now a thing of the history. Um, surprint, surprint's hit and miss. Sometimes you have it, sometimes you don't. And, and we'll talk a little about that as we talk about the art. So for the most part, though, you're still going to get your main character in the foreground in the image. They might have half page. They might have a full page. They're going to be in color, and you're going to get all their personal data. And we're going to go through that. And the goal of this, again, is for us to describe it in such a way that you don't have to be looking at either on your smartphone, looking at our webpage, or digging through five different annuals because we don't want you guys to, you know, basically hurt yourselves. I don't even have a funny anecdote this time. Terribly sorry. Okay. Let's do this. We are going to start off with Justice League International. Oh, I love that book. Justice League International, annual number three. It, uh, According to Mike's Amazing World DC Comics, it hit the shelves on May 25th, 1989. And the first entry we're going to see is – the way they're broken up a little interesting. There's three pages of entries. Each one's half page. Um, and, they, and they focus on the different embassies because in that issue, they kind of had a fun romp where they went from embassy to embassy to embassy to embassy. And so you got to meet a lot of the embassy staff. Um, so the first embassy is the Tokyo Embassy. And we got to meet uh, – I'm going to try and say these names – Anata Akatsua, Cindy 
Karhana and Duke. We'll just say Duke because he goes by Duke. And the gist of it is uh, all three of them, they have the, kind of their own unique personalities. All the artwork in these Justice League International ones are by Giffen and Rubenstein. And just kind of the, the personality quirks you walk away with is uh, uh, Katsua, who's the, like the main guy at the, at the office. He is, I guess he's considered the embassy chief. He is a perfectionist. And apparently one of the funny bits is he likes to do Kung Fu origami, which is, I don't know what that means, but it sounds hilarious. And then the, the, the secretary... Kurahara, she's a very nervous kind of person, and Duke, he's kind of funny. He is he is completely obsessed with John Wayne. He has an absolute fixation on him to the point where if anyone indicates that John Wayne's real name is Marion, he will throw down right then and there and have a fight with the people, which is cute. Then I, I think what we'll do, Rob, maybe is I'll just run through all six of these, and then we'll have the commentary on the back end. How's that? Sounds good. Okay. Next one is the Paris Embassy. Now, the important thing about this one is that Justice League Europe was already well underway. It was already like somewhere – I don't remember exactly the issue number, but it was probably you know within the first five to ten issues. But still, it was already being published. So the, 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 the embassy chief there, or bureau chief, Catherine Colbert, is uh, already a known character, and uh, she's featured here as well as Anatoly Bob Balzac, I guess is how you say it. And Catherine's a really interesting character. She she has a life outside of Justice League. She goes on to do other things after the series is over. And she's one of the few characters that's going to be listed here that that her first appearance wasn't in this annual. Her first appearance was in Justice League International number 8, which, by the way, is going to be the next issue we cover on the uh, Justice League International Bohaha podcast. Hmm. It's nice of me to slip in a plug once in a while, I suppose. Anyway, neat thing about Catherine is she is a model, and she's a fashion icon in Paris. I mean, they say that people look at what she's wearing to decide what they're going to wear. That's how popular this woman is. She's a great planner. She has got all, knows all these languages. She's smoking hot. I mean, there's, this woman is, like, perfect. And uh, when Bart Sears was drawing her, woof, man, I mean, she really was perfect. So, and personally, I have forgotten how much of a huge crush I had on this character until I started rereading these Just League Europe issues. Big, big thumbs up. And she's really cool. She's a neat, neat, strong-willed character. This Bob guy, um, he also loves American kind of stuff. The weird thing is, he didn't appear in the annual, and I don't think he appears anywhere ever again. So near as I can tell, he is only in this little who's who entry. And they spent an, uh, uh, you know, enough space on there, a couple of inches on him, and I don't really know why. Next embassy is in Brazil. Uh, you meet a couple of folks there. You meet Ernesto Lopez, and you meet the secretary, Ariza Luizia. I, th- he was introduced a while back in Justice League International number 12. His big shtick is he's unfaithful to his wife. He's sleazy. He's like the kind of boss no one wants to work for, you know, like the people Rob usually ends up working for. Uh, and his secretary is, is not the brightest, and she's usually confuses people, and apparently she has a habit of quitting and then coming right back. Then we move on to the USSR embassy, and for you kids at home, that's Russia. They first premiered in Justice League International number 8, and uh, the bureau chief's name, Boris Dmitry Razumovin, and uh, it also featured with him are these two enormous women. They're twins, uh, Rosa and Dana Rubiskova. And I just want to read their little bio because I think it's hilarious. This is their father, whose name was unknown, tried to get them into wrestling as the Twin Peaks of Siberia, but both preferred to study and were top of their class. They were quick-witted and sarcastic. Both are good singers. Rosa and Dana are both addicted to Kentucky Fried Chicken and Hershey's Chocolate Syrup on everything. They're competitive and keep a running total of their male conquests. <laughs> I got I, I'm, I got to think Giffen wrote these things. or may, I guess maybe DiMatteis wrote it, but obviously the guys behind it, the book, clearly wrote this because this stuff's hilarious. Then you get to the English Embassy, and you meet Michael and Lisa Morris, and uh, their assistant, whose name is Esteban Sanchez. I don't know if you got the joke here or not, but this is based upon Faulty Towers, you know, with uh, John Cleese. 
So it's based on Basil, Sybil, and Manuel. And, uh, for example, Michael is very, very frantic all the time. He wants to do everything by the book, but it's as he sees the book, and he thinks he's an expert at everything. Lisa just loves to go shopping and go to beauty parlors, and Esteban speaks very, very little English, and he's clumsy, and, but he's very devoted. Interesting thing here is that Michael goes on later on to become a, a superhero in the Just League International uh, called a Beef Eater. And then finally, you get the Australian Embassy featuring the Tasmanian Devil and Joshua Barbazon. Joshua's thing is he's apparently just like the nicest guy you've ever met, and that's his shtick. Everyone just thinks he's about the nicest guy ever. Tasmanian Devil, I gotta read his thing too, it's very funny. Born on Tasmania, his origin is sketchy, but rumor has it that his mother, aware of Tasmanian Devil, raised him in the Tasmanian Devil cult, which gave him Tasmanian Devil amulet after selling his soul to a Tasmanian Devil and injecting him with radioactive Tasmanian Devil musk from a race of alien Tasmanian Devils who gave him his powers. Other sources say he just was watching a Warner Brothers cartoon whenever he wants. Cute. Very funny. And um, they did out Tasmanian Devil as being gay, and apparently him and Joshua may have had a relationship. And Tasmanian Devil Devil, uh, is probably the oldest of these characters, appearing all the way back in Super Friends number 7. Oof. Tried to get through that as quick as I could. What you got, Rob? Uh, Well, it took me a sec. I I had this comic, the one with the the annual. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember these listings at all. Maybe I didn't read them because... Visually, there's not much to go on except for Tasmanian Devil. Uh, I really don't find these funny at all. There's something. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, there's something about the way the I don't know. They just to me, it's like it, there's like a healthy uh, dose of flop sweat to me. Uh, and they're so <laughs> desperate to make these funny, and they're to me like the humor just sits there. And I like the JLI book. I love the JLI book, and I think the JLI book is funny. So there's something about this that just isn't working. The only one that I actually thought was funny was the Tasmanian Devil one because they weren't trying to go for the jokes as much. It was more meta because it was just, you know, he were a Tasmanian Devil, raised him in Tasmanian Devil cult, which gave him a Tasmanian Devil and amulet, and then he mm-hmm. sold his old Tasmanian Devil, injected him with a ra- Like just the fact that you keep saying Tasmanian Devil yeah. 50 times in a one in two paragraphs or whatever. Like that, I chuckle at because it was okay. just – but the rest of them, I was like, ugh, this was just rough. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, it's, it's funny. I forgot, and this is something I forgot uh, when we did the first issue, and I, I, I don't know, it just didn't dawn on me. And now when I read these, it's like, duh, is, you know, you look at these characters and you're like, really? These zeros get listings? But, of course, these annuals, these listings, are the exact opposite of what who's who normally is. Who's who is a, supposed to appeal to everybody. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to get samplings of all the characters. This, these, these listings work just the opposite. They're, they're in the book you're already reading, so presumably you like Justice League. That's why you're mm. reading this. So you, th- these listings are not for new readers to sample the characters. These are sort of rewards or bonus features for the diehards because only a diehard JLI fan is going to give a crap about Michael and Lisa Morris. <laughs> right, you know what I mean. That's the only way yeah. to work. So, so I, I'm not as critical of these as I was in the first book because it, it just sort of dawned on me that yeah, these that's what these are for. These are meant to be for the diehard fans, and that's just the opposite of what who's who normally is. Doesn't mean it's worse or better. It just means it's just different. As a diehard fan, I can tell you, I don't think it needed three pages. I think they could have done all of these in one page. And just simply listed the embassies and maybe just the bureau chief and something cute about them. And then you could have had one page dedicated to an updated entry for Justice League America and one page dedicated for Justice League Europe. Because those didn't – Europe – if I remember right, Europe wasn't in Update 88. And, um, and Justice League um, 
last time we saw them, it was still international, and it was just I think Fire and Ice had just joined the team, if I remember right. So the, there was a lot of stuff that they, they, they could have stayed in to have some updated entries. I would have preferred that. And, and this annual also, I mean, I'll talk about this in like I don't know two years, whatever. But it, there's a there's some hit and miss in that annual too. Like the first for story is pretty good, but like the last story, oof, man, and the art, the whole thing is kind of sketchy. Anyway, we've probably spent a lot more time on this annual than we really should. Yeah, I, I agree. All right, let's move on to the question, annual number two, uh, released the same week, May 25th, 1989. Thanks for that, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. And we're going to split the question because neither Rob nor I give a crap about him. I'm going to cover the first couple, and then he'll cover the next. <laughs> I don't think that was, that was not the reason we were doing it. Oh, it wasn't? Oh, that's what was on my radar, but okay. I'm just kidding. We're, I'm really trying to sell these annuals as being juicy to everybody, but here we go. <laughs> the question, as uh, drawn by Dennis Cowan, this is um, it shows the question with his logo at the top, which I've always loved with the, the question mark inside the key, which looks great. And he is standing there in his big puffy uh, shoulder padded black leather jacket, black blue leather jacket. He's got his pants on. He's got his hair with his mullet going on and no face because, you know, the question is face is completely missing. Now, the only thing I would say is this this. Dennis Cowan version, this De- I guess Denny O'Neill was the writer, if I remember right. This version of the question, I wish he still wore the fedora. Because there's just something so classy about the question wearing that fedora. But this is more of an ass-kicking kind of question, so uh, I don't think that's the case. Either way, this is Victor Sage. You find out his real name, well, maybe not real. The name he got in the orphanage was Charles Victor Zaja. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to go into a lot of the detail of it because you guys know the question's origin for the most part, but he protects Hub City. And, you know, he, he was an investigative reporter and he developed, along with this other guy, this, this fake skin he wears over his face, which makes all of his features go away, yet he can breathe. And it makes him sort of creepy and featureless. And he goes out and kicks all the ass. And at this point, he had become a huge martial arts guy. Lady Shiva had sort of put him on a path to – I don't know why they don't just come out and say it was Richard Dragon. They just say a guy named Richard. But it's very strange that they're so vague about that. But anyway, uh, he became an amazing martial artist. And um, now the interesting thing here is there's no powers and weapons. You think they would tell you that he's like, you know, an insanely accomplished fighter or something like that, but it's not listed. And they got the space for it. Exactly, exactly. Now, one of the fun things is there is some uh, graffiti in the background, so you can see a couple different things. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to read any of this, but it's just fun to look at, and you'll see it out on our page. So what do you think of this one, Rob? I love the drawing. Uh, I really, I always like Dennis Cowan's artwork. Uh, I agree. I like the question in the fedora, but this is rocking his 80s look. But uh, I like <laughs> I, I like the drawing a, a lot. Um, I always feel like the question probably could have been bigger because I think he has such a great visual. Uh, although, I guess, since we saw the blank in the Dick Tracy movie, uh, you're kind of like, well, that's the question pretty much. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know enough about the question to know if there's any new information here. I don't get the sense that there is. I mean, it covers the first couple issues of his new series at that point, but uh, the drawing is terrific. I really, it's you know, it's got a kind of Dennis Cowan, that Bill Sienkiewicz kind of energy, and that's yeah. what it looks like. I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. and I like all the graffiti and all that stuff. But yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a sharp drawing. If I remember right, when we when when we did the last question entry, I think there were only like a few issues into his series, and like his entry was very much a this happened. 
then this happened, and then this happened, because it was like just describing two or three issues of his comic. And I think he had just gotten his butt beat by Lady Shiva and dumped in the river or something at that point. Which is, I think, um, it's the end of the first. That's the very first issue, I think. Oh, jeez. Because <laughs> I think I bought that series. I remember that. He, like, he literally dies at the end of the first issue. You're like, what? <laughs> this isn't going the way I expected. Now, uh, and I know we've spent time talking about this before, but I got to mention my favorite incarnation of the question is from the Justice League International cartoon, or Justice League uh, Unlimited cartoon. Love, love, love that version of the question. I, did you watch the cartoon? I did. He was used very effectively on that show. Oh, he was and great. Who was, who was the voice? Was it? Uh... Uh, I wish you hadn't asked because it's it's in the tip of my tongue and I can't come up with it. Is it the reanimator guy? Is it Jeffrey Combs? Is that who the question it, was? It could have very well been. That's that is very possible. I'm not it good was. with voice actors. Michael Bailey's yelling at his Zonophone right now. Um, but it's uh, it was. It was great. So, all right. Yeah, they, 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 you got the sense on that show that, like, he was a fan favorite of Bruce Tim and Paul Dini because I felt like and, he got, like, a special kind of display. And anybody watching. <laughs> he did. It was uh, Jeffrey Combs. I'm looking it up right now. Okay. It was, in fact, Jeffrey Combs from Reanimator. I thought so. Perfect casting. Well, like the, the pit that sold it was he's, he's got his map with all the stuff on the board and all the push pins and stuff. And they're like, he says, I got it out of the garbage. And they're like, you went through my garbage? I go through everyone's garbage. <laughs> Something to that effect. It's just like he's, he's so crazy. Out, out Batman's Batman. Yeah. And there's a whole thing about the Girl Scouts and everything. Anyway. All right. Next entry is Aristotle Rodon, Rodor. Um, I'm just going to put it out there. This is not a very good drawing. Um, this is done by Beauvais uh, and Bill Ray. And at this point, like, I honestly had to read the text to figure out whether this character was male or female. <laughs> it is that androgynous. Um, basically, the Aristotle is uh, – there's not a lot to tell. Uh, Aristotle is an inventor and a professor, and uh, Aristotle is very good friends with Victor Sage. And Aristotle was one of the people who helped invent this pseudoderm or whatever it's called, the, the question mask that the question wears. And uh, he's basically question's best friend. The artwork is he's sitting in a chair. He's, he's being all intellectual because he's at his writing desk. He's surrounded by books and crumpled up papers and, and coffee, and you know, he's got Plato and the art of war philosophy, you know, all these great books. And then um, he's got his little half-moon spectacles and long white hair and his little penny loafers. And his coffee mug is, is steaming up. And as the steam rises up, it's the steam is forming a question mark. And you can see a, a, a glow or not uh, a hazy image of Victor Sage as the question there, which is a nice effect. Uh, I, think it, I think it's laid out well. I just don't think it was uh, executed very well. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of it. I, he does kind of – I feel like that's this is what uh, Zoom Yukonori's brother would look like if he was like a hippie kind of guy, like a hippie professor. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's not a terribly interesting drawing. All right. All yours, Rob. Okay. Well, next up is another question character, uh, uh, Myra Furman, uh, who is a, uh, a television news producer, uh, sort of production assistant. She ends up being the mayor of Hub City because she marries the mayor. Who's this crooked guy? And then he dies, and she ends up becoming the mayor. Which I don't think that's how it works. I was like, no, like they, they, I think they have a special election, or they have like the deputy mayor. I don't think they make the wife the mayor. But yeah, not, is, not, you're right; it's not how that works. This is comic, so okay, whatever. Although to be fair, the tax collector tried to do that in my hometown, but that's a whole different story. All right, okay. The drawing is by Malcolm Jones III. I really like the drawing. Uh, oh, she, spectacular. Yeah, she's a real fashion plate. She's got these big poofy, this big poofy outfit, and a tight cinch belt, and 
there's a, the question in the background. And so I really like the artwork. I think the artwork is really, really quite nice. But, yeah, I'm a little confused as to how she ends up being there. Um, it's very strange. And she mentions, says, Myra is burdened with a terrible secret, the murder of the Reverend Hatch, her husband's evil mentor, that only the question is privy to. She accepts her guilt and seeks to deal with it. And it's just basically at this listing, she's in the middle of her first term. She certainly doesn't look like someone that would be a mayor of a city because it's she kind of has like a flash dancey, not flash dance, but just it's very 80s. I, I've so, got it. Don't I got it for you. Yeah, okay. This is if Pat Benatar appeared in a David Bowie video. Yeah, there you go. I can see. Yeah, love is a battlefield. So, uh, but you know, okay. I don't have a, again. I don't have a whole lot to say about this character, but the drawing sure is nice. It's an excellent drawing. Now, it's interesting. Her face. He did so much with so little lines on her face. I mean, there's a lot of lines on the page. Don't get me wrong, but her face has so few lines. Uh, he executed it perfectly. Yes. It just. She looks beautiful. Uh, there's just hints of things there, like the nose is just hinted at. She's she's stunning, and she's but she's got really kind of short, choppy, butchish, punkish, pinkish hair. Yeah, Grace Jones kind of hair. Yeah, and it's like yeah, like you said, this is the mayor. Yeah, that's <laughs> but um. It's cool. It's cool, and the entry was one of the more interesting ones from the question lot that I read. Right, and the whole idea is that even though she was married to the corrupt mayor, she herself is not corrupt because she's trying to actually – it mentions here she's attempting to restore some measure of control to the beleaguered city. So mm-hmm. she's actually like trying to be a good mayor. So uh, I guess if you want to find out uh, what happened to her, you have to read issues of the question and see if she became a good mayor. I don't know. Uh, folks, we owe you guys an apology. I mean Rob and I, between us – Pretty close, I would say, to an encyclopedic knowledge of the DC universe. This one's just a little bit of a blind spot for us, but or yeah, at least for oh, me. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean that's the, and that's my whole thing. I, you know, I always feel a little guilty because as we go further and further with these who's who, the less I know, because I just really started zoning out a bit uh, when we got to the early nineties. But you know, we're doing our best here. So <laughs> we're going to get to a point where you're going to be like. I don't know who this guy is. Someone named Tim Drake. I guess he's I, important. I don't know. There's, there's a Batman? Okay, sure. <laughs> uh, okay, next up is Isidore O'Toole, drawn by Bill Ray and John Workman. I really like the drawing. Uh, he's a police lieutenant in Hub City. Uh, he They don't explain, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if he's supposed to be, like, really weird looking because he kind of looks like Rondo Because he is. <laughs> um, well, who does he look like? I'm sorry, what? Rondo Hatton. I don't know who that is. Uh, the big uh, – you've seen – he was the kind of the big bad guy in the Rocketeer movie. Oh, yes, he does look like That's that. Based on, Rondo, <laughs> based on the old actor Rondo Hatton, uh, known as the Broodman in the Universal films. And uh, so he kind of has that weird plug-ugly look, but they don't explain any of that. So they just – he's just sort of your typical cop. They mention it's here that he's uh, – he joined the police force at 19 years of age and immediately fell in with the most corrupt element of the force. <laughs> So, I mean, he kind of has a look. I mean, but I like the drawing. He's with his car, and he's got his gun in his holster. And, you know, it's a nice little drawing. But he first appeared in question number five. So he's a creation of the new, you know, of the Denny O'Neill series. And, and the thing that makes him stand out is, as Rob said, he fell in with the, with the corrupt folks. And something happens where he turns a corner. Right. And he, and he cleans up his act and is fighting to clean up Hub City and becomes the most incorruptible cop. So he becomes the question sort of contact in the police force. Right. But the, the art does nothing for me. Oh, yeah? Well, I like it. Yeah. Sorry, cartoony, but I like it. I like Bill Ray. It I, is cartoony. I'll agree I, with that. I, I, I like Bill Ray's humor stuff. Bill Ray did a lot of stuff for uh, Mad Magazine, which I like mm-hmm. that. I, but, uh, yeah, no, I kind of like it. Uh, next up, uh, the sharing the page with him is Lady Shiva, who I think probably, if you're going to do these, probably deserves more of a full page. But I guess there's also not a whole lot of new stuff to say. This is drawn by John Workman. Uh, who's 
more known as the letterer John Workman, but he did some artwork here and there and did some stuff for Who's Who. Now, she, of course, goes way back to Richard Dragon, Kung Fu Fighter number five. Uh, it's kind of funny. I always think about those things. I think that series was written by Dennis O'Neill as well. Oh. And it's funny when you think about it, Like, that book was produced entirely because of the Kung Fu craze. Oh, sure. Yeah, right? And I'm sure when he created Lady Shiva for that series, it was not meant to be this thing. And, like, the DCU has gotten so much out of her. Oh, like, yeah. For yeah. decades. She's appeared in cartoons. I mean, it's like she's really become like a – I don't know. She's not like an A-list character, but – for something that Denny O'Neill probably just tossed off, it's just remarkable how much they've managed to get out of this character. I mean, how much she figures into the DC history. Well, she's the measuring stick for martial artists in the DC universe right. now. Right. I mean, when you talk about, you know, someone is, you know, you come up with a new character, whether it be a Batgirl or a Tim Drake or someone who's, you know, learning martial arts, it's like sooner or later they're going to get their ass kicked by Lady Shiva. That's how this works. You know, and at this point, I don't know if she was popular enough to deserve a full page, but boy, she was on her way. Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely. Did she in, was she in the more DC versus Marvel miniseries? I don't remember. DC versus Marvel? Yeah. Um, no, she was not. Okay, because she not would be. Not. I mean, she could have had like a one-page panel. I suppose. I mean, but... you know, if she would have taken on Elektra, that would have been a. Uh, actually, career. Catwoman fought Elektra. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. Yep. Um, and I only know this because I just listened to Michael Bailey and Donovan Morgan Grant talk about it on Views from the Law Box, and it was a blast to listen to. All right. Okay. Well, that's it for the question characters. So All right. now we're going to move on to Green Arrow, because it's pretty Green Arrow. And the first entry is Green Arrow, full two pages. Uh, not a lot of new stuff here, uh, but, you know, again, that's not really the point. This is really just kind of the who's who. We're going to just re-go through all these characters, and you're reading Green Arrow. So, of course, you want to read two pages about Green Arrow. It's drawn by uh, Dan Jurgens and Dick Giordano, which is a great combination. It's interesting, a little bit of a stylistic choice. Their signatures are next to the art credit. It's not part of the drawing. Mm-hmm. It's art by, and then the, like they kind of like dropped it in as artwork, which is kind of unique. I don't know how many times they really we've seen that in Huso. I, I this is the only time I can remember. Okay, now we do have a little bit of commentary thanks to our pals Darren and Ruth Sutherland, who of course are the Green Arrow experts, thanks to their podcast Warlord Warlord Worlds, which is the Mike Grell podcast. So, uh, if, if I can, I just want to say, say, I, there's, you're going to hear that throughout the show. I reached out to several people in advance. Uh, since these since these Who's Who entries are so specific to certain titles, I reached out to certain content experts, asked for their advance feedback to uh, help us along as we go through this. So, yes, there we, we have people doing the work for us. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, so Darren and Ruth Sutherland said, the Hollywood stuntman referred to in the, gold, in the Green Arrow article or Who's Who page was Howard Hill, who was called the world's greatest archer, winning around 200 competitions during his life. He did the bow and arrow stunts for the adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn and can be seen in that movie during the competition. He also produced dozens of documentaries during his career. So, yeah, there's not really not much new here. They get into a little bit of the Longbow Hunters at the end. It talks about he has abandoned the use of trick arrows, taken on a new costume, and makes no attempt to hide his secret identity. But it's basically just a re- you know, just a, 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 the history of Green Arrow, just done over again. We see in the, it's not the Serpent, but in the, the single color with him and Speedy in their old costumes, and then we see him in his his mid-costume with the hat, the classic costume, and then the, the, the current one with the hood. There's Lady Shiva, Green Lantern there. and the, It is not Lady Shiva. Not Lady Shiva. I'm sorry. What's her name? Uh, Shadow. Uh, Shadow. Yes, I'm sorry. I meant to Ooh, say. man. The Sutherlands are not going to talk to you. Yeah. They're, they're very nice people. I won't do that. And then we see Black Canary and Ollie and Dinah on a date, and then a close-up of him without his uh, mask on or anything like that. So, you know, great drawing. Dan Jurgens and Dick Giordano. That's a 
killer combination. So, yeah, it's really just sort of, you know, hey, here's Green Arrow again. Well, it's interesting because, you know, Dan Jurgens seem, uh, is – Mike Grell helped get Dan Jurgens into the comic industry. And so Dan followed Mike Grell on Warlord. My, uh, Dan followed Mike Grell on Green Arrow. So there's, there's you know, kind of a pattern there. But a couple different things. Um, uh, you know, it's, it, I like that they show his original appearance under first appearance, More Fun Comics, uh, number 73. I don't know if you've ever perused that issue or not. Vaguely uh, familiar with it. <laughs> and now, and because Arrow is so popular nowadays, I just feel like I want to touch on a little bit of his origin. This is the version where he's on the boat and he falls overboard because he's drunk. And so it's not, he, there's no dramatic thing of why he, can't, he fell off the boat. There's no big mystery with his father. No, he just got drunk, fell off the boat, ends up on an island. He's only there for three months. He does not have three seasons worth of adventures. Um, and he oh. ends up getting... He, he ends up getting rescued because he... I did want to mention that, yes. <laughs> you want to do it? Go ahead. The guys that show up on the island are marijuana farmers. <laughs> that, right. That's a definitely modern addition to the story. And the way he gets away is they're stoned out of their minds, so he's, he steals their boat. <laughs> hey, man, what do you do? All right, whatever. <laughs> and they do address, as uh, Rob was saying, how he, at this point he's moved to Seattle. He's not using his trick arrows anymore, and he doesn't have a secret identity anymore. Uh, I just as a side note, I still say that the Mego Green Arrow doll is the best Mego they ever did. Of of the you know they basically took the the comic book and turned it into a doll. It just it's the my favorite Mego of all time. He's got the hat, the bow. They really went all out. I love that one. You know when DC did a line of eight inch, maybe ten inch figures uh, in the nineties that had cloth cloth costumes. They're basically a modern-day version of the Magos, uh, Magos. I don't remember what they were called. DC Classics or something like that? They came in a big box. and everything. Uh, They're not quite 12-inch, but they're a little shorter. Anyway, they had cloth outfits and stuff. I have um, the Aquaman. It uh, was a classic orange-suited Aquaman. Uh, right. I, have a, I have a Green Lantern, and I have a, a Green Arrow. And the Green Arrow one is amazing. He came with a quiver full of <clears throat> really cool arrows. He had a I mean, he, he's probably the best of the bunch. It looks very golden age green arrow, but he looks fantastic. In fact, I have him sitting up on a shelf in my office. I don't know why I dug him out one day, but I did. So he's sitting out next to my Mego Aquaman, which uh, there is a size difference. So I guess he's about two inches or an inch, inch or two taller than the Mego Aquaman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, next up is Black Canary, of course. We're gonna have green arrow, we're gonna have Black Canary. This is joined by Randy Duberk, who I am completely unfamiliar with. His style reminds me a bit of Paul Glacey. Uh, it has a little I bit, can of, see that. A little bit yeah. kind of that uh, very minimalist. Uh, what's that painter from the eighties? Uh, Nagel. 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 That's it. Nagel. Yeah, it's very eighties. I mean, her jacket. You see Dinah in a, in a jacket, and oh boy, is it eighties. You just see a little <laughs> bit of it. It is really super eighties. But I kind of like it. It's very stylized. I don't. I, I've never. Again, I'm not familiar with this guy, so I don't know what his sequential work looked like. I get the sense of this drawing. He, it doesn't really work in a sequential form because this thing's very postery, but uh, nevertheless, the drawing is very nice and like it's very similar to the Green Arrow one in that it mentions the stuff about moving to Seattle. It talks about that she has lost her ability to generic uh, to generate her uh, sonic cry thanks to the sadistic torture she under she went she underwent at the hands of the criminal and the Green Arrow Longbow Hunters. But it's basically yeah, it's just just her you know going back over her origin. It. It's interesting in that this, um, you know, it mentions, you, Shag just mentioned that the Green Arrow listing says his first appearance is Morphon Comics number 73. Now, mm-hmm. that is not the version we're looking at. That's the, that's the beginning of the Green Arrow concept. Right. They don't do that here. 
because here Black Canary is listed as Justice League number seventy five as her first appearance, which is of course Black Canary two's first appearance, not Black Canary one. Right. Well, we're going to get to another Black Canary entry in a little bit, right. which is where they do cite her original entry. Right. So it's it, – it wasn't – wouldn't – see, here's where it's confusing. It's not really Black Canary 2's first appearance, if I remember right. It's the first time Black Canary was a member of the Justice League, wasn't it? Well, right. Uh, they have to – I mean, I guess they're, they're, they're sticking by that crazy-ass origin that Roy the, They're not, with. actually. Well, yeah, they are. Well, here, you know what, tell you what, I'm, I'm going to jump in here. Besides the fact that these were all earmarked for me to cover anyway, I'm thrilled you're doing it, so I get to sit back and relax, but thank you. Um, I reached out to Ryan Daly, uh, who's a Black Canary expert, to give us some advanced feedback on this. And so what, what he said in this is actually, he specifically said about that retcon, a Black Canary to Black Canaries, that started in 1983 with Justice League of America number 219 to 220, because it was still taking shape about six years later. Now, it culminated in a Black Canary story in Secret Origins number 50, which, by the way, you can hear discussed just this week on the Secret Origins podcast. Um, Ryan did a phenomenal just amazing, phenomenal job on that last issue uh, of Secret Origins. He covered the that's Black Canary story. He did it completely by himself with no help from anyone else. Um, <laughs> yes, Rob was there with him. And it was great coverage. But what he says here is this Who's Who entry is actually one year um, before that Secret Origins episode. Her issue. He goes, but this who's who entry is the first place where they start to explicitly state that a younger Dinah grew up surrounded by her mother's superhero friends. So he's saying at this point, and, and even more so when we get to the next Black Canary entry, that they are breaking from that batshit crazy uh, you know, story from Justice League uh, 219 to 220. So he's saying this is where it's cutting the, cutting the ties to that. Okay. All right. He also... But- he also goes on to oh, – go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. But, but All right. I, it's very confusing to me because by saying her first appearance is JLA 75, I don't know. It's very strange. Well, I think what they're trying to say is the original Black Canary maintains the original Black Canary first appearance. This Black Canary maintains the first time Black Canary was a member of the Justice League, I think is what they're saying. I guess so. So, because that would that would be when the new Dinah joined, rather than crossing right. Earths and all that crap. Right. I think that's what they're trying to do. Uh, at the end of the day, you say screw it. You know, don't. Who cares? You know, is what you really got to say. But so a couple other things to note. He says uh, Randy DeBurke, who you were asking about the artist. He said he also drew the Black Canary stories that ran in Action Comics Weekly. So if you oh, want to see what right. his sequential stuff looks like, you could check that out. Forgot all he about also, that. He also pointed out a couple of errors, which are interesting. Uh, he said, like, the second paragraph keeps referring to her father as Richard Drake, uh, but Richard Drake is actually her grandfather. Her father's Larry Lance. So there's a little mix-up there. And then uh, what else? He said, um, back in, and it, for updates as far as what's changed, the previous Who's Who entry said that both of her parents were dead. But by the time this uh, came around, they had changed that, and her mother was still alive. So that's an update. Uh, he also talks about how some of the changes, like, you know, she moved to Seattle and stuff like that. But apparently, if you compare the two entries, she also shrank an inch and dropped 12 pounds. Uh, and apparently, her eyes took on a gray color. So, interesting changes. Uh, and then, of course, as you mentioned, the Sonic Scream's not there. And they don't even have, like, a powers and weapons section to say where the Sonic Scream used to be. So, interesting. You know what? Yeah, uh, you're completely right. You were supposed to do green now, so you take over now. I just kept talking. I completely forgot. I was perfectly fine with it. I'm like, you know, I took all these notes, but screw it. I'll let him do this. Well, we're going to get us in trouble now because we're about to cover Shadow, and this is I'm sure I'm going to make the Sutherlands mad because, you know, I have a problem with with Shadow in that I felt like the Green Arrow book was too much of Green Arrow and Shadow. But anyway, 
So, uh, Shadow, who's drawn by Michael Davis, and uh, it's it's actually it's a very pretty drawing. It's her in the foreground, uh, and if you've never seen Shadow before, she's really got a neat look. She's uh, she's Asian, and she's got this mask that just covers like her nose down, so her mouth and her her, her chin and stuff are covered. She's got a bodysuit where one of her shoulders is exposed, and you can see this really interesting intricate red dragon tattoo that goes down her body, and sort of a tunic. And uh, and, and in the serpent here, you can see the dragon, like a a, a yellow iteration of the dragon tattoo and then a very nice what's i guess supposed to be almost like a charcoal drawing of her so uh the deal is her family was uh, yakuza and her father came to the united states and was in charge of a large deposit of money and um he got locked up in a japanese internment camp and a lot of the soldiers were trying to get him to tell him where the money was well he wouldn't tell them and so they ended up torturing his wife for the location of the gold he gave it up and then the yakuza insisted that he commit ritual suicide and then they took his daughter which is this young lady shadow and the yakuza actually raised her as an assassin and they put this giant dragon tattoo on her basically representing her father's shame so she's working off her father's shame through the Yakuza, and in the end she ended up killing her father's tormentors. So uh, she appeared tremendously throughout the Mike Green Arrow series. She had her own miniseries uh, that actually our buddy Professor Allen covered on the quarter bin, which is kind of interesting. And uh, in this drawing, she doesn't look like she's going to kill many people because she's only got two arrows in her quiver. It's interesting, you don't see her bow anywhere because that's what she's sort of famous for is uh, you know being another archer. So, And I'm pretty sure she appeared in the first season of Arrow, or at least some version of her did as well. What you got on this character? Uh, yeah, five foot ninety pounds. I don't get that. Five foot. That's very tiny. I never got that when you see her. I feel like she's not that small, but I guess she is. I I guess she is. <laughs> I'll take that as it is. <laughs> All right. Up next is uh, James Cameron. Another drawing by <laughs> King Bo of the Fett. World. <laughs> that's right and uh, it's here it shows a drawing of him in a trench coat and another <laughs> drawing of him in a trench coat and then in the background is the space needle and, and all I'm going to waste your time in telling you folks is that he used to be in the army now he's in the police and he is the police contact for Green Arrow it is not worth any more of your time so, you having fun with that? I am I don't like, why is that boat there? Why is that pic why is the picture like at a weird angle? I don't understand. Like I don't understand what's I happening. think maybe it's a postcard? I don't know. Maybe. Okay. But it's another Beauvais and well actually what is floating around it? It looks like fingerprints around it or I something. Know that. Yeah, I'm sorry, I, mean, I, I saw, didn't mean to slow this down. Let's <laughs> I saw the Space Needle not too long ago and it, you know by the way, uh, I saw the Sutherlands. I don't know if I mentioned it. Uh, we're talking about the Sutherlands. I got a chance to uh, have dinner with them with Kichi Baker when I was on my world tour recently. It was very nice, very wonderful people. Uh, hopefully they'll forgive me for s s slandering their beloved Green Arrow characters. <laughs> Next up is Speedy. You know Roy Harper. You know that guy. And this is done by Grant Markham. Uh, or is it Mitchum Markham? Meme. Yeah, that guy. Okay, Grant Meme. Uh, it's actually a really nice drawing. Speedy's kind of squatting. Because he's got a half page and his panel's not very big, he's actually on one knee bent down so they can draw. <laughs> I assume that's to accommodate the panel, but he looks – it's a really nice drawing. He's you know, muscle-bound. Somehow, you know, they really did do a good job of making Speedy's boyhood outfit look cool in his older years because that had to be tough. But they managed to pull it off. He looks really cool, and there's a close-up of his kind of smiling face. And uh, they go through Speedy's origin. Most of you probably know it. He has the same first appearance as uh, Green Arrow, which means he's really been around a very long time as a sidekick. That's kind of amazing. Most people got their sidekick as time went by. He was prefab right there. Talks about how he was raised on the Navajo Ranch, uh, how he learned his skills with bow and arrow, and there was an archery contest. Green Arrow came, and that's how he got hooked up with him. Uh, 
Uh, they talk about how he became Green Arrow's partner, and then when Green Arrow went to bankruptcy, uh, Speedy turned to drugs, and uh, he became a heroin addict, and then eventually became got clean, joined the Teen Titans. Uh, I guess Teen Titans were on both sides of that, but either way. And then uh, hooked up with Cheshire, and they has a daughter named Leanne, and they st- he's apparently still using the trick arrows. So, I love the I love this drawing. Yeah, I like it a lot. Grim Meme as the same guy that did the Miss America listing in Who's Who, which mm-hmm. I went on and on about it. I don't yes, you think you don't. I don't think you fully get that appreciation here, but I think it's it's a nice drawing for how what little space he had. I I'd say he's hot. I, I think looked- really can I say on the both these listings, I hate that vertical type. Ay 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 ay. Oh really? Why? I think it's just hideous. Interesting. I mean, oh. I. Cameron one looks kind of stupid because the M's are huge, but the Speedy, I don't have a problem with. Okay. All right. Up next is the next Black Canary. So, or I should say the original Black Canary. So this is the Golden Age Black Canary, drawn beautifully, I think, by Rick Stassi. I absolutely love it. Now, in a real break from traditional who's who, the whole page is full color. There is a clear background that could have been in singular color, and there's a floating head of her without her wig and, and dark hair that could have also been in single color. I'm not sure why they went for full color here, but so be it. Um, but anyway, I think the drawing looks great. It does sort of uh, have an, uh, evoke a Golden Age sort of feel. And um, tell you what, I'm not even going to bother telling you about her origin. You already know what it is. Go back again and listen to Secret Origins, the, the episode uh, number 50. They cover this in beautiful detail. It's exceptional. You need to go do that. I but I will find a section in the episode. Um, well, I mean, second to Space Museum, I would say, yeah. But I will read some of Ryan's comments. Uh, so, again, this is Dinah Drake Lance, the classic uh, Golden Age green – I'm sorry, uh, Black Canary from Flash Comics number 86, I think is what that says, August 1947. Yep. And uh, it says that this entry makes it very clear that Roy Thomas is retcon from JLA 219 to 220, where Dinah Drake's memory, blah, blah, blah. So that's it makes it very clear that it never happened. Instead, the history, legacy of the Black Canaries here plays out very similarly to Silk Spectre in Watchmen. And I never drew that parallel before, oddly enough. I never thought about that. But, you know, in, in Watchmen, Silk Spectre, the mom and the daughter, and the Black Canary mom and the daughter, very similar. Um, now, Ryan says here, to his knowledge, this particular Green Arrow annual that this, this Who's Who entry comes from features the only contemporary story, and that's a story set at the current time, not a flashback, a story meant to take place in an earlier era, where both Dinah Drakes, uh, or Dinah Drake and Dinah Lance, are together. The story features the elderly Dinah trying to convince her daughter to quit the superhero life after losing her sonic scream at Longbow Hunters. And the next time we'll see Dinah Drake and Dinah Lance together is when the former dies in Secret Origins number 15. So... What do you think of this one? I like the drawing a lot. I like Rick Stasi's work. Um, the the sort of simplicity of it and the really thick ink lines that he uses reminds mm-hmm. me this this stuff has a real color forms feel. Uh, I mean that as a compliment. It does. Uh, yeah, it's, good. it's very distinctive. And he is one of the few people that I say has been able to get away with the disembodied neck, as we all know. <laughs> oh, because he made it a shoulder. Because he could right because he he partly put in a shoulder line and that gives it some sense of context. It's when you just draw the neck by itself, it looks very very uh, upsetting. Yeah. Actually, there is an inker here, Terry Beatty. Uh, so it's probably Terry oh. Beatty's work uh, as well in terms of the thick ink lines. I think it's a it's a nice combo. I, it, it's it's it fits the character, fits the the era that they're trying to work on. It's interesting. Is I I looked this up. I, I don't think Terry Beatty got credited online, but yeah, his signature is clearly yep. there. Yep. Hmm. Yep. Okay. Um, I will say, too, like, the way he's drawn her, you know, Black Canary is typically drawn very, very, you know, super skinny, 
sort of tiny kind of character. Here she she's thicker is the wrong word. Voluptuous maybe is the word I'm looking for. She's this girl's beautiful and has curves and it looks good. Yeah, she's and not he, bone he, thin like right. typical. Yeah. Well, where I'm going with this, she looks like a woman from the 40s. Mm-hmm. She looks like a, yes. a gorgeous starlet from the 40s, you know, and uh, I think he did a really good job with that. Did I did I not know that she was based in Gotham City? Um, well, last time I checked your memory bank, uh, you were not aware of that. I don't so, remember yeah. that because, like, how many – there's a lot of Earth 2 heroes in Gotham City. Batman had a lot of competition. Well, I mean, they uh, – what's his name was there? Uh, Green, Green, Lantern. Green Lantern. Green Lantern, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I guess they weren't into creating a bunch of fictional cities back then. So, All right. Up next is the New Titans. Uh, Rob, you want to try and uh, poach this one from me too so I have less I work to do? I absolutely do not. <laughs> Except to mention that one chick is topless. I... <laughs> You're doing my job for me now. Um, New Titans Annual number five hit the shelves on June 13th, 1989. And, uh, and well, you know, that's, again, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Or, um, so I'm just going to go through this. It, I actually have some nice things to say about this. But it is not <laughs> – you see I'm struggling here. It's strange. It, it's not the sort of usual kind of stuff. So it, basically what it is, it's three entries, okay? Each one's two pages. The first one is the Titans of Myth. Oh, she is topless. Look at that. Uh, the next one is the Titan Seeds. And the next one's Troya. And when I first got to these entries, I went, oh, I don't want to do these. And then I started to read them, and I thought, oh, I really don't want to do these. But then I really paid attention to it and realized they flow very nicely, actually. The way it works is rather than looking at them as one entry, I'm going to talk about them as all three. Because they really do. If you read the Titans of Myth, and then you read the Titan Seeds, and then you read Troy, it really sort of tells the story. And it's kind of a beautiful story. All of these are drawn by Tom Grummet. We'll talk about the art in a minute. But so the way it works is the original Greek Titans of Myth. So we're talking about, you know, in your mythology class, you learned that Zeus's dad was a guy named Kronos. And he was the guy, he was the head of the Titans. And, you know, he was a bad dude. And Zeus ended up um, slaying Kronos and, uh, and exiled all the Titans. Well, according to this myth, the Titans didn't die. They were just exiled, and they went to a place called New Kronos. And there, their powers began to wane because they didn't have anyone worshipping them. And there's 12 of these Titans, by the way. And um, Kronos' wife, or widow, I should say, Rhea, sacrifices herself in this timeline, whatever, to help find 12 special children who they can bring to New Kronos to eventually become the next generation of these new of Titans. And so they, uh, they they bring these 12 children along to New Kronos, who they call the Titan Seeds. Ah, leads you into the second entry. And each one of them come from various planets. And these ki- in each one of the cases, these kids were about to die. And they were stolen away by the Titans of Myth and brought there. And they were given powers. They were given combat training. Donna Troy was one of these people. And after they were done training, they were returned back to their planet without, with their memory erased. So they didn't remember this. And they wanted them to reintegrate, be part of that culture. And then it, the plan was at some point down the line, the Titan scenes would then return to New Kronos and would become the next generation of gods. Well, one of the Titan seeds lost her freaking mind. Sparta, she went nuts. She retained her memory somehow, went nuts, and went around and killed a whole bunch of the Titan seeds. Only three of them survived, one of which was Donna Troy. And... Uh, they ended up battling Sparta and uh, defeated her, and, and Troy kind of won the day. So then that leads you right into the entry for Troya. 
which was Donna Troy's identity during this period of time in the New Titans. And in her history, her mother was dying, and so Donna was given away to an orphanage. And the orphanage was totally crooked, dude. They were selling babies and children on the black market. Horrible, creepy stuff. And they had Donna being held up in an apartment with this fake couple waiting to basically be sold. And it was really nasty. But then there's a fire. There's an apartment fire. The, the, The building's burning. Donna is about to die, but the Titans of Myth swoop in and save her. She becomes a Titan seed. They basically, they return her to Earth at age 13 with no memory of it. She joins the Teen Titans. She becomes a photographer, marries Terry Long. And now that she knows about her origins and knows she was one of these Titan seeds, She's actually gained additional powers. So she's got strength and flight and force fields, and she can illuminate dark spaces and things like this. And all of this really was necessary because of Wonder Woman in the post-crisis universe. Because Wonder Woman has a completely different origin in post-crisis, and it kind of screws everything up with Wonder Girl, because how can you have Wonder Girl 10 years before Wonder Woman? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Which, you know, and Marv Wolfman worked on this in various storylines. He did the Who is Donna Troy story. And then he followed that up with later of who is the Wonder Girl. And then many years later, someone else, I think Jay Farber maybe followed it up with who is Troya. It became kind of a running theme there. Uh, for, and now let's talk about the artwork. And then I've got some comments from our good buddy Tom Panarese. But uh, so the first one, Titans of Myth, you've got 12 of them all there, you know, in groups of two who sort of being a husband and wives kind of thing. What do you think of this drawing by Tom Grummet? Oh, I love it. I've I've said a lot of nice things about Tom Grumman. I think he's a great artist, and I really do like – I like all the listings here. I The characters eh. – uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I, especially of the three of them, the Wonder Girl one is terrific. Um, I like the way he manages to draw her face is similar from person – from incarnation to incarnation while also changing and growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's tough to do. That's really yeah. tough to do because a lot of artists tend to draw like an adult face on a kid's body because they don't know how to draw a kid face. But uh, and, but I like the the Titans of Myth drawing. I mean, it's I yeah I the characters do not interest me at all. And the minute the Wonder Girl lost all of her backstory, I just completely was like, yeah, well, all right, whatever. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but but the drawings are are great. I really think they're they're quite sharp. I agree. I, 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 you summed it up perfectly. It's beautifully illustrated. Grum did a great job. I just couldn't care less about these characters, though. Um, you the know, minute Wonder my, Girl became Troy, I just thought, all right, I'm, I, I'm tuning out now. Well, I didn't, I didn't have bothered by that. I just thought, okay, new name, whatever, you know, because you know, everyone was getting, you know, Flash, Kid Flash becoming Flash, you know, Robin became Nightwing. So you know, it's just like the next evolution. You know, it's like okay, that she gets her grown up name now. Oh, she's Troya, and she gets an overly complex costume that normally only George Perez can draw. Except Tom Grummet pulled it off here. Uh, he did draw it quite well, and I, I did like the whole idea where they gave her this sort of sexy bodysuit of black Starfield, uh, which became a, con- a reoccurring theme for her for quite a while, and I just thought that was always pretty cool looking. Um, our buddy, I reached out to Tom Panarese, who's a bit of an expert on Titans. Uh, he's, uh, you know, we haven't been giving people their proper credit. We should have been. Uh, we should have said the Sutherlands do the Warlord Worlds podcast. Well, they also do Trekker Talk and Xenozoic Xenophiles, uh, so they have a, a, quite a few podcasts out there. Ryan Daly does, is part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does the Secret Origins Podcast. Well, he used to do the Secret Origins Podcast. Uh, oh, shed a tear. Uh, Power of Fishnets about Black Canary. Not over Canary. yet. There's still one more to go. <laughs> Give me those Star Wars. Uh, he's got the upcoming It's Midnight, the Podcasting Hour uh, podcast, and also he is the spokesman for Propecia. So, and then uh, and, and Tom Panarese. 
formerly did the Taking Flight podcast about Robin. He has Pop Culture Affidavit, which features tons of New Titans content, and uh, In Country, which is a podcast about the NOM. So he wrote in to basically say that he never – it's funny how you talked about Troya and her face because he says he never really liked the way Grummet drew Troya. He said he got the costume right, but there was always something about the way he drew her face, which made her look much older than she actually was. And as he says that, I look at this. Yes, yeah, she looks like about a 30-year-old woman there when she's supposed to probably be 22. So he makes a fair point. Uh, and he says he was a fan of the Who is Wonder Girl story because it managed to fix the continuity issue without ruining the previous one who was Donna Troy. Now, all that cha- all that really changed, though, is that Donna – I remember I mentioned the, the apartment building that as a child she was in where she was going to be sold on the black market. Sure. Donna was rescued in this case by Rhea, one of the Titans of Myth, instead of being rescued by Wonder Woman. So that's really the big change. And uh, he said, it, plus, it's one of the very few Titans in space stories that actually work. And he says he liked the introduction of the Titans of Myth as having a connection to Donna, similar to uh, the Greek pantheon having a connection to Diana. And it gave uh, Troya a sort of a status that she didn't previously have. And it worked with good writers like Wolfman, Perez, and Jimenez. They used it well. And finally, he said, for those of you that are thinking Donna Troy's back, you know, background's all screwed up, truthfully, that didn't really get ruined until John Byrne came along. So thanks, Tom, for all that feedback. We appreciate it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> next up, we have a one-off, and that is Swamp Thing. Uh, you make my heart sing. Do, 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 do. Oh, sorry. We're I really, we were trying to, really trying to get this done. Swamp Thing, uh, it's two pages, drawn by Pat Broderick. Of course, your pal from Fury of Firestorm. Did he uh, draw the Swamp Thing book? I have no, I didn't think so. But we, I could be this, wrong. Is, this is the Veach era right here. Yeah, he might have. I don't know. He might have. <laughs> I could have. I remember that book at one point was inked by Kim DeMolder. I kind of remember that just because Kim was my instructor at the Kubert School. That's a little throw out there for David, Gut- David Gutierrez. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so he might have. Anyway, uh, Pat Broderick does a very nice job here. They're sort of mimicking the look uh, that was established by Vicente and Tottleman, where he's the more veiny, small. Although this was a little reined in here. Uh, we see John Constantine in the background and some of the, uh, some of the, 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 um, I forget the name of the hippie guy. I read it here, but I forget what it is. Not not Abby Arcane or anything like that, actually. Um, but they, we get into the history of the stuff with all the um, Abby being Abby getting married to Swamp Thing and them having this child and the Parliament of Trees and all that stuff. So it you know it basically just brings up all the history of Swamp Thing uh, up until this point. And there's a lot. I mean, there's two pages, so there's a lot of space here to to uh, get into all of it. I kind of interest, interesting that the. Uh, Height and weight. I know I'm obsessed with this stuff, but the height is, is <laughs> variable seven three. Weight usually three hundred and seventeen pounds. I like how he's usually exactly three hundred. Well, I, I noticed that too. The three seventeen is what caught my attention. Is like usually three. That's very specific to say usually. <laughs> I'm three eighteen. I'm getting so fat. You know, like what is that? <laughs> Someone get this polyp off me. Yeah, it's very straight. Um, and it mentions this, this and. The, at the point where they wrote this, it says, however, the Swamp Thing has recently vanished from his own time and has been repeatedly hurled back from through time from one period of the past into another, wherever he encounters and gazes upon a mysterious piece of amber. The Swamp Thing's final destination in the past has not been revealed, nor whether, will, nor whether will he will ever return to his own time. And I think it's during... Jesus the- Christ! Yeah, that was part of the joke. So yeah, yeah, I, I was headed there. Thank you for jumping in on it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was during this run that Reach, Reach wrote where Swamp Thing runs into Jesus Christ, which got DC into a little bit, a little bit of a pickle. <laughs> I just like to use it as an expletive, sort of there, just because it, it all meshed nicely without being, you know, blasphemous. I think so. <laughs> okay. 
Um, what's going on in the tree? What is that? Like an amoeba or something? I think that's where they sleep. Oh, do they? Oh, really? They, okay. I think that's like their bed. Because I mean, I, I didn't mention we do see Abby. She's not in the. She's not in the clouds in the background. We do see her in the background, standing there uh, with child. Yeah, it's kind of interesting the way they put the people in the clouds. It almost qualifies as a serpent, kinda, because it is you know sort of a single color, so it sort of works. It's a nice intro. I think it's very pretty. I love the. I've always loved the Swamp Thing logo, um, and uh, it's it's well done. Yeah, I like all it. those colors are nice. Yep, and, and it by gets, the way, it gets into the powers and the weapons way more than a lot of the other characters so far. Like it actually is a decent amount here of what he can do. It talks about that he created the jungle throughout Gotham City. And uh, and turned the enormous deserts of the planet Rand into fertile land, which are some of my favorite Swamp Thing stories. So I like that it kind of gets into that stuff. And to be fair, you know what? This is actually not the first, but one of the one of the more traditional looking Who's Who entries. You're right. This is a very traditional Who's Who entry because uh, I guess you can count that as a serpent. And as you said, the powers of weapons is fleshed out. Yeah, this this counts as a, a pretty legit one. Yeah, that's say. And it's a good – it's an update too. I mean it gives you a good update of the character. Now that was Swamp Thing Annual number 5, and that came out July 13th, 1989. I think the most important thing to take away from that is I think Firestorm – the Elemental Firestorm has a cameo in that issue. Hmm. All right. Up next, Dr. Fate. Woohoo! Annual number one on the shelves on July 27th, 1989. Now this is the Eric and Linda Strauss Dr. Fate. Awesome image here uh, by – now – this is interesting. His name's Jim Fern. I don't. Do you know who that is? Do you know that I, name? I do not. Okay, I did a little research on him. Turns out he has a, he has another name he goes by as well, and I don't know which one's a little more known. James Bausch, B O S C H, and he's got a number of credits to his name, so he's out there. I just I didn't know him either. But it's Doctor Fate in the foreground, and he's sort of coming at you. It's a the helmet has a lot more expression on it than previous incarnations of Dr. Fate, and that's because in this version of Dr. Fate, the costume, the helmet, the clothes, all of it is actually Dr. Fate's body. So there is no helmet of Naboo anymore. The, their, their head is actually in the shape of the helmet, so the eyes become a lot more expressive. The, the point of the helmet is almost looks like an angry beak. Uh, Sean McManus was drawing it in this era and just really did some amazing things with Dr. Fate's appearance. It, just, it was really fantastic. Totally kick butt. So Dr. Fate's coming at you, and in the Serpent, it is a legitimate Serpent because it's a single color. You can see Eric and Linda Strauss. You see old Kent Nelson. You see Petey. You see a female version of Dr. Fate, and you see that awesome Dr. Fate logo that I love so much. Then I'm going to go over the history a little bit here. The gist of it is uh, you know, the classic Dr. Fate story is Naboo, who's a lord of order, uh, took young Kent Nelson, aged him you know, back in the 1940s, aged him from a child to adulthood, and turned him into Dr. Fate. And whenever he put on the helmet, Dr. Fate, Naboo would sort of take over and become Dr. Fate. Well, uh, what's happening here is Kent's body is wearing out, because he's been Dr. Fate now like 40, 50 years. His body's wearing out. He's going to die, so Naboo needs a new host. So he goes and finds this other young man. He's basically going to try and pull the same trick. He finds a young man named Eric Strauss. He he's a, who's very young. He ages him to adulthood. And he plans on making Eric his new host. Well, somehow during the story, and I don't remember the exact circumstances, I really need to reread it, but Eric and his stepmother, Linda, actually merge during battle. They, they become one entity independent of Naboo. They become Dr. Fate independent of Naboo. And it turns out that all this time, it was always intended for Dr. Fate was supposed to be the union of a man and a woman without Naboo there. But Naboo was a control freak, so he never let Kent Nelson know that he was supposed to merge with Inza and uh, his wife. And so that's how Naboo maintained control. Now he can't because Linda and Eric have formed Dr. Fate. 
And so what does Naboo do? He does the most logical thing. He lets Kent Nelson die and then reanimates his dead corpse and takes it over. Um, which is pretty creepy. So now the, 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 the new norm for Dr. Fate is Eric and Linda, uh, stepson and stepmother, who are now sort of the same age and having sort of a romantic relationship. A little weird there. But they f- come together to form Dr. Fate, and they're actually probably more powerful than Kent Nelson ever was. However, they don't have the knowledge to use that power yet. So they are being mentored by Naboo, who is in Kent Nelson's old body, and somehow or along the lines, they have picked up this little tiny cute demon named Petey, who transforms into a really hideous-looking dog whenever other people are around. What you got? Um, nothing, really. Uh, no, the only, uh, the artwork's okay. Um, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the pose. Like, oh, really? the, the way he's kind of, like, scrunched up okay. a little. It's kind of weird. I do like the drawing of the female Dr. Fate. Like, that's a nice pose, like, but she's jumping into the not jumping flying into the air mm-hmm. so i kind of like it i just wish i don't know just a little i, I like dr fate's costume so much as we've talked about before it's one of the great yeah. costumes in all of comics so the fact that it's kind of hidden to me is a waste you know I see like, what you're you saying. should see yeah. more of it um it is the only entry i think uh maybe not in all of who's who but it's certainly in this run that we're looking at where the personal data history powers and weapons text is color-coded the yellow, the the letter. Oh, it is, is it's yellow. got a yellow highlights. Yeah. Everything it? else is black and white, and that's I have wow. to I have to imagine that's just the the choice of the, this particular book's editor because these were yeah. all of course done by different editors. I like it. I like it a lot. I think it gives it just an extra little touch of you know visual cohesiveness, which I wish everyone had done. So I dig nice, that a lot. Nice, uh, nice eye for detail there, Mr. Kelly. Thank you. <laughs> All right, folks, uh, that's it for Dr. Fate. Up next is going to be Wonder Woman Annual number 2, which hit the, cell, hit the shelves uh, also on July 27, 1989. Rob, why don't you tell us about that one? Uh, yeah, this is the Mayor Agency, uh, which is said is, is a, the office in the heart of Boston, Massachusetts' thriving business district. The Mayor Agency has been one of the most successful and powerful publicity mills in the United States since the late 1970s. It's founded by Mindy Mayer, which was one of the supporting characters of the Wonder Woman, George Prez's Wonder Woman book. And she was this sort of hard-charging, driving agent type, and they did a whole storyline where like, she was hooked on drugs and stuff like that. Because the whole bit was that Wonder Woman was sort of like marketed. You know, Mm -hmm. when she was presented to the people like as sort of a PR thing. So I don't really remember all this stuff about the mayor agency. Maybe I I I read Wonder Woman for several years. I just don't remember any of this stuff. So maybe this was later on. I don't know. Maybe they never got to it, or maybe just you know it's just faded or memory over uh, faded from my memory over time. It's drawn by Mary Wilshire, uh, who didn't do a whole ton of superhero stuff. I think she drew the um, Windfall. Was it Windfall? Oh, is that the entry that we love so much? From the Outsiders? Yeah, like we we fell in love with her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, Mary Wilshire is a wonderful artist, but she's just not somebody who did a lot of superhero stuff. did something for Secret Origins as well that we all liked. Um, Shoot, I can't remember what it is. She drew Red Sonja for Marvel briefly. Like, she tended to get female-driven stuff because she's a female artist. So uh, I like the artwork, and the, you see the other characters from the mayor agency all posing, and in the background, there's, I guess that's supposed to be Mindy, uh, sort of like a... Cause she, the, the one up by Wonder Woman's the dead lady. Yeah, that's Mindy. And then okay. she's there, there she's with Wonder Woman. I'm a little confused, because uh, the colorist drew, I guess that's supposed to be a table in front of Wonder Woman, but it's colored the same color as her flesh, so it looks like this other weird fleshy thing. It's, a, it's one of those giant lamps. Remember those floor oh, that, lamps? Oh, it is. It is supposed to be lamps. Okay, that should be Yeah, white. the 90s okay. floor lamps. Yeah, you're right. That is. That's exactly what it is. Uh, but anyway, it mentions that 
the other characters, Christine Fenn, Steve London, and uh, our director, Denny Hayes. And it says it doesn't know whether the Mary Agency is going to survive the loss of its charismatic namesake. Well, it's clearly obvious Wonder Woman and Mindy were intended to be in Serpent, a single color. Like, or I guess ghost. So, yeah. Yeah, because Mindy's dead and Wonder Woman's not part of the agency anymore. Or, or she's she's not a client anymore. So clearly those were supposed to be like ghostly things in the back. and Because you, like you even said, the lamp's in front of Wonder Woman's leg. So they, they didn't quite get that right. This entry to me is just a mess. Because uh, the, the art's fine, I guess. The coloring, not so much. Uh, everyone look, does look very 80s. But there's this entry make is, is completely wasted, dude. Like I asked Frank. Uh, Frank's our Wonder Woman expert. Frank does a Wonder Woman podcast. Uh, he's with the World Spine Podcast Network. Also includes Marvel Superheroes podcast, the Bloodlines podcast, Idleheaded Diablo, Power of the Atom, uh, plus a bunch of blogs. And basically he said, given that all the major new and revised villains were already represented in Update 87 and Update 88 – so there wasn't really anything left to cover but the mayor agency. So they pretty much had done everything. And the fact that Perez had drawn all those other ones, uh, of course they were going to go in the big updates. You know, they weren't going to waste a Perez one in the back of this thing. So uh, that's why it's, you know, it's not even by Perez. Now, as you read this, like you said, there's a lot of minutia in here. I mean, it talks about, like, you know, I'm exaggerating, but it's like Bob got a promotion and now he's head of marketing. You know, it's like... <laughs> I think it, I, I think what this is is whoever wrote this had been spending a lot of time with advertising agencies lately because they really get into the minutia of an advertising agency that who cares in a comic book. So I, I it's a bit of a waste for me. All right. Well, we could just move on then. Yes, we will. Uh, in fact, we're going to head into the final section. Here this we go. Is Detec- this is from Detective, Detective Comics, Comics Annual. Annual number two. Uh, was released on August 1st, 1989, and that is the last annual, folks. So this is the completion of the Who's Who Update annuals from 1989. Well, and we're going to go on some good ones here. Not some, mm-hmm. some, some, some not good ones and some good ones. One really? Of the, one of the, I think there's some rough ones here, but we'll get to them. But one of the okay. good ones is The Joker, uh, drawn, by, drawn by Kevin McGuire. Uh, they're... There's not a lot of new stuff here. It gets into the whole Killing Joke origin. It doesn't expressly say that this is his origin, but it says, uh, of late, the account given to most credence has him as a happily married laboratory assistant at Ace Chemical, dot, 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 dot. Uh, so that's a nice way of, um, uh, you know, splitting the difference there. You know, it's mm-hmm. like saying this is probably the origin, but we're not expressly saying that it is the origin. And it goes through all that. I really think this is just an excuse to have Kevin McGuire draw the Joker. Which is perfectly fine because he does a great job. I think I like the way he draws Joker. He draws super skinny Joker. He's got the Nicholson pants from the Batman movie. Uh, and then in the Serpent, we see him. And then there's all the flashbacks are done in playing cards. Mm-hmm. So we see him briefly uh, over in the corner in a, in a, as he's shooting uh, Barbara Gordon. No. Uh, yeah. And then we see him getting kicked by Batman. Uh, we see him with the devil fish. We see one of his henchmen or one of his victims there with the, the rictus grin. So it's – oh, I'm sorry. The anchor is Ke- Carl Kiesel. It's not just Kevin McGuire. Oh, yeah. Kiesel. Uh, but it, like I said, There's also I, uh, a shot of him as the Iranian ambassador. Yes. Well, I chose not to mention that. Uh, okay. And uh, – <laughs> but yes, yeah, so this really – other than – and it does mention that whole bit about killing uh, uh, Tim Drake. Not Tim Drake. Uh, Jason Todd, of course. So it gets into all that, uh, and it mentions that he is, of course, it, it appears the Joker felt it was death, sure. Uh, but except, it's really, I think it's just an, an excuse to just give somebody to draw the Joker, because I think every comic book artist likes to draw the Joker. And McGuire does a great job. McGuire's a great artist, and it looks, it looks great here. 
Well, McGuire kind of lost an opportunity to draw the Joker in Justice League International Annual Number Two because the Joker was the big bad in that annual, and you know he couldn't do the monthly book and the annual, and so he didn't get a chance to do that Joker issue. So that maybe this is kind of like his. He missed his chance there, so this is his chance. I love the face of the Joker in the background. Just that grin, like that that expression. It's not just a crazy manic smile, but it's almost like he's like he knows that he's got to look like I know a secret kind of look on his face. And I think it's wonderful. Now, I reached out to Chris Franklin, who is uh, our buddy from the uh, – he's also part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does the Supermates Podcast, the Power Records Podcast. And um, he is really – our kind of our go-to Batman expert. So I asked him to provide commentary on all of these entries for Detective Comics. So on Joker, he said that the 1988 update is really where they started giving the Killing Joke origins some credence. And it even listed his wife, Jeannie, and relatives. But of course, the big difference here is, as you said, he killed Jason Todd, except um, in this, it says he beat him to death, but really it was the bomb that killed right, Jason Right, he dies in an explosion, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I, you caught the Nicholson pants, so did he. I, I did not catch that, so that's cool. Yeah, he's got this big. I mean, he's very skinny the way he's drawn here. Except he's got these really big poofy pants, and those are the. Uh, to me, they just remind me of the Nicholson pants. Yeah, you yeah. got it right. It's great stuff. Uh, next up is Catwoman in one of my least favorite costumes that she ever had. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like this costume. I think the giant cat mask looks doofy. In the surprint, we see her without her mask, and it looks very suspiciously like a drawing from David Mazzuccelli's Batman Year One. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. This was drawn no. by J.J. Birch, who, of course, we know liked to lift drawings well, from other artists. Some people at home may be a little confused. J.J. Birch is a pseudonym AKA, used during yeah. this time for Joe Brozowski. Right, Joe Brozowski. So, yeah, I am not a big fan of this particular listing. Uh, I just think this is not a great Catwoman costume. I hate that Catwoman logo. I think that woman, the logo is ugly. Uh, I think this is really kind of an ugly listing. I really do. Uh, I do not have a problem with the logo. Um, I kind of like that logo, where it's basically it's like a, a it's a it's either a, oh, is that a whip or a cattail or something or just a, a messy C, and then the at woman is very looks almost like Batman font. Uh, I kind of I kind of dug it. I was there was a cat's tail. Yeah, it probably is. And then her kissing, you know, Batman in the bottom, and a bunch of hissing cats, and the cat of nine tails. My only issue with this is that this. Entry is showing her as she appeared in uh, most famously at this point, very recently, was year one. You know, it was that year one costume. But this sort of like forgets every other costume she ever wore. I mean, it implies that this is the only costume she's ever had, and that was not the case. The post crisis changes in year one were not to imply that this was always her costume. There still is the purple one, you know, the, the sexy one that Dave Stevens drew for us in the first Who's Who entry that we love so much. Um, it was Dave Stevens, right? Yep. Yeah. Now, Chris chimed in. He says uh, her last entry in 87 did have her Batman Year One backstory, but she still had her Golden Age purple dress. And, and Kyle, or Carl Kyle, was a brother. Now, this entry follows the Catwoman miniseries and Action Comics weekly stories, and she gets a sister named Maggie, connections to Wildcat, and all traces of the pre crisis continuity are gone, and she's lost three pounds. Okay. Yeah, I'm just not a huge fan of this. I, do, I like the line in The Powers and Weapons where it says. Grant also – Ted Grant, because she's trained by Ted Grant because he trains everybody. Also taught Selena to be – Yes, he does. Huh? I said yes, he does. Yes. Uh, Grant he trained also, you, I think. Grant also taught Selena to be proficient with a cat of nine tails, her trademark weapon. Its snap can cause pain, maim, or even kill. She has done all three. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, you know, uh, we've mentioned in other episodes that like Rich Buckler is another guy who's kind of gotten caught for, for – 
swiping. And it's really not that big of a deal. I just feel like you probably need to be a little less, like, you know, obvious about it. And that that silhouette is just sort of so – it's a very memorable shot to me from Batman Year One, especially since Batman Year One had only come out a year or two earlier. Right. Uh, as opposed to other things. So, you know, it's a little like, come on, Joe, JJ. <laughs> you know, come on, man. <laughs> so what are you going to do? Uh, next up is Catwoman. Again, drawn by J.J. Birch. What? Uh, huh? Catwoman? You're doing... Oh, I'm sorry, J. Penguin. Penguin. Penguin drawn by J.J. Birch. Uh, this is another one I really don't like. I just think it's it's just ugly to look at. It's just like it's kind of dirty looking and just messy. And I don't know. It just does not appeal to me uh, very much at all. Um it mentions his first appearance. It was Detective Comics number 58, December 1941. It's interesting. All these Batman villains, none of them get modern first appearances. They're all just going right back to the Golden Age. But you, you know what's interesting though, is all of them include a year, which yes. isn't all that which isn't all that common uh, right. for them to include a year. All these lists, all these listings have it. All of these uh, spread across all these annuals is interesting. They must have decided to start doing that. Um, it's you keep more, talking. More, I'll more, check. I, I could have sworn comics some of them lists 1941 and the oh yeah yeah Swamp maybe this is the, does yeah well like Alfred doesn't though hmm. you know um and and Robin doesn't you know it's kind of weird they, they seem to almost either pick and choose or depending on the book you know like the Superman ones didn't either um but Swamp Thing does right. you know it's it's very inconsistent yep so here he's called the Bird of Banditry. They love all that stuff. The writers love all that kind of, uh, you know, the alliteration, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it says, since that time, the man of a thousand umbrellas has been one of Batman's most implacable foes. He has often based his crimes on birds. I think we know that. And has sometimes employed them in his machinations. His trick umbrellas are formidable weapons, which is interesting that they don't mention that in the powers and weapons. Hmm. Here they mention the umbrellas. Adding to his deadliness, he has but one weakness, his vanity, upon which the Batman has played several times in order to trap the penguin. So, I don't. I, they get into a little bit of the. I guess this is the the origin uh, that there was in the Secret Origins. Correct. Special. So that's that's why they're kind of doing. I mean, they're doing less thing because it's Penguin and because it's a Detective Comics and they're doing all the big villains. But well, they're they, doing because it it's because it's 1989. Is right, why they're exactly, doing it. <laughs> right, yeah, and they have a little. But here, at least, they have a little something to talk about. Is that they have that new origin to kind of not the new origin, but a detailed origin to get into. Yeah, absolutely, and, and and you know we haven't mentioned it. We did it in the last podcast, but yeah, folks, I mean, don't forget this is this is nineteen eighty nine. This is the summer of the bat. Yep. So make no mistake, that's why there's so much Batman presence. Um, and, and Chris's comments, Chris uh, Franklin again. He he did mention the Secret Origins special, and he says uh, he looks a little bit like Danny DeVito uh, in the drawings, which apparently there was already even though Batman Returns was three years away, it's already heavily rumored that Danny DeVito would do the do the play the part. That's now, true. I don't. I don't actually have a problem with this entry. I kind of like it. I, um, I, I like the Penguin profile. I like the face. I like him being slammed by Batman. I like. The, I, I think that all works. I, I would have preferred some of that stuff as surprint in single color in the background would have been better. And, um, you know, it, it reminds me of, like, almost like a Michael Bear drawing. You know, B-A-I-R. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes he would just put a lot of lines for no reason, like that background where there's just a bunch of horizontal lines for no apparent reason. That's the kind of thing Michael Bear would do to fill up space. Um, you know, like, uh, I don't know. That is just what it reminds me of. Is Now, I don't have a problem with the art, but I, I can't help but sit there and wonder, is this swiped from something, you know, because of, of what we've discovered recently. Also, um, this is Penguin when he's on Slim Fast. Yeah, he is, that is a thinner Penguin than what we're yep. used to. 
Yep. yep. I, I do dig how Batman, when he's slamming Penguin on the ground, that he's got that giant shadow, which represents the bat symbol, which is nice. Uh, next up is the Riddler. Here we're going through everybody here, the big ones. Uh, this is drawn by Joe James, who I am completely unfamiliar with, and inked by Carl Kiesel. Uh, Riddler's got a ponytail. Yeah. I don't know what's that about. Uh, so, you know, no. Uh, he's <laughs> carrying his book of riddles. Uh, the one thing, this this also suggests the uh, story in the Secret Origin special, one of my favorite stories of that entire series where he is r- uh, running the uh, junkyard. Mm-hmm. And he mentions here, over the years, the Riddler has become a less and less formidable villain. At last report, he had retired from crime and had taken a job as caretaker of the Finger Junkyard in downtown Gotham. Whether he has permanently left his criminal career behind remains to be seen. Of course, we know that he didn't, but... It does, it does get into that stuff. And, of course, it mentions its first appearance, which is Detective Comics 140 in 1948. For people who don't know, he came along a bit later than most of the classic villains. Like, not terribly later, but, you know, Batman number one features the first appearance of Joker and Catwoman. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's in 1940. He got a full eight years later before they got into the Riddler. And as most people, I don't know, I guess remember, know at this point, the Riddler was pretty much a minor villain. Through the 40s and 50s and the early 60s, it wasn't until the TV series resuscitated him and turned him into a major foe. Right. Absolutely. Yep. And as you point out, the, the Gaiman story really is in effect here. Apparently, the, the, the as Chris Franklin says, painting him as a mort uh, started in the question and then moved on to the Secret Origin special. Also, his name has changed now. It's Edward Nashton. Instead of uh, Edward Nigma, yeah. Yeah, well, well, it's still AKA Edward Nigma, but right. apparently we find out he has a real name. And uh, you mentioned that junkyard, which was such a brilliant idea. The idea there, folks, was all the crazy props that Batman would, you know, jump around in, on the rooftops of Gotham all ended up in this one junkyard, and Riddler is the caretaker for it, uh, which is fantastic. I love that idea. And Chris had a similar comment to you because he said, Where did that ponytail come from? Yeah, <laughs> I, don't I, I don't like that one at all. <laughs> But I like the serpent, how there's like this giant question mark and Batman's inside the question mark. And there's just various shots of him. I always have this very clear image in my memory. And it's probably a, a, an image from like a, a stock art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Brand praise be his name. Of the Riddler firing guns. And the guns were shaped like question marks. Hmm. Like I have a very vivid memory of that. But Yeah, no, I like the drawing. Again, I'm, from, I'm not familiar with this Joe James guy, although we'll, we'll run into him again in a second. But uh, it's not a bad drawing. Uh, you mentioned Batman in the queue. I like that he's got the Riddler clue and he's like crumpling it. Yeah, he's, he's pissed. pissed. He's all pissed off. I like that. That's good. And I like uh, the uh, the color version of Batman falling into the frame with the, the cape fluttering and the Gotham City skyline is at an angle. It's a nice drawing. Not bad. Yep. Not bad. And uh, you mentioned this Joe James guy. We actually ran into him a, a lot last episode too. Did we? Yep. Oh. And we said the same thing. We had no idea who he was. Okay. And, and <laughs> nobody enlightened us. I don't believe <laughs> Uh, next up is the Scarecrow, drawn by Joe James, Carl Kiesel. Uh, this one I'm a little less a fan of. I just think it's a little busier, even though I like the character a lot more. Scarecrow is one of my all-time favorite Batman villains. I don't think he gets like enough play, uh, but I really do like him. The logo is pretty ugly. I don't know where they got that from. But, uh, yeah, I don't know how much new stuff there is here uh, in terms of stuff. It's, uh, Chris says... Uh, not much has changed since Volume One entry. His run-in with Captain Adam and mm-hmm. developing phobias of his own seems to be it. I had no idea that he ran into Captain Adam. That seems like a one-sided fight. 
<laughs> well, with the fear power, I mean, that's the nice thing about it. He can turn that around on anybody. I know, but Captain Adam is a nuclear bomb walking around. Uh, for God's <laughs> sakes. Uh, it does mention, currently Crane has begun exhibiting a variety of phobias, perhaps as an after effect of exposing himself to so many different toxins. Never get high in your own supply. His most inhibiting fear has been his fear of capture by Batman, almost guaranteeing that Crane will never willingly break free of Arkham. I've always dug this character. I, I just... I, I just think it's got a great visual and everything else, and I like the uh, version they did on the cartoon. This is a rarity in that it, it mentions the first appearance, and it says, World's Finest Comics number three, question mark, right. 1940. <laughs> either either the editor missed it, uh, meant to go back and fill it in, or they just don't know what month. They just don't so, know. You would think it would just put 1940. Like, they have to actually right. put a question mark. It's like the Riddler <laughs> snuck in here and stuck his own little comment yeah. in here. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's the Scarecrow. And I, I was always really happy the Scarecrow was a, such a big villain in the Nolan films because I, I, I just love this character. He's one of my favorite Batman villains. He's got a great hook, probably because of that Alan Byrne story, Batman Brave and Bold 197. He's great in that. So he, I just dig him. I, I like that they used the – because you know, Scarecrow went through quite a few looks. Uh, I'm really glad that at this point in this entry he's got sort of the challenge of the Super Friends look. Uh, that, that, that's Scarecrow to me in my yeah, mind. I, yeah, yeah. That classic look. That talk like that in the cartoon. <laughs> and uh, man, I, I, the only uh, unfulfilled wish though was if they had finally gotten it all to come together, and Howard Stern could have played the Scarecrow. In the, <laughs> that would have been the best. God, thank God, thank gosh, thank goodness he, that we never got a fifth Batman movie out of that Ooh. series. Oh boy, I watched Batman and Robin this week again. Did you, did you, was it some sort of punishment? Or I am going to be appearing on an episode of Mike Gillis's. Schwarzenegger podcast to talk oh, about. Oh, oh, oh. The things I do for that man. <laughs> so you know, anyway. I got to meet him. I got to meet him on my trip too. I know, I heard. He, he and I hung out. We went to the comic book store. He is crazy tall. I mean, just like I had to get up on a stepladder to kiss him. It was crazy. He's so tall. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> uh, next up is Poison Ivy. Moving forward. Next up is Poison Ivy, <laughs> joined by Chris Wozniak and Jerry Acerno. Uh, this is a you know, very la-di-da, sort of sexy pose. She's there in her in, in her great outfit. She, you see her in the clinches with Batman. There's a close-up of her, and there's another shot of her in her little in a little less outfit. Pamela, Pamela Lillian Isley, first appeared in Batman 181, June 1966. Um, Chris says, here he says, very different than her first entry. Now includes Gaiman's new backstory from Secret Origins number 36 and the Black Orchid mini. Also, her role in Suicide Squad and an actual plant controlling powers. So they had a lot to say. Now, they were going to list her anyway because she was one of the main villains, but at least they had some stuff here to talk about. Yeah, and that secret, that secret origin story, if you guys haven't read it or listened to it, uh, wow. I mean, that's just a trip the way they handled her because they hadn't given her that much depth at that point, and it was really creepy. I mean, it was kind of scary. Now, you, you described it as a la di da pose. I mean, I'm I'm underwhelmed with this particular drawing. It just looks like he traced a anatomy book of how a you know what a woman's shape is because first of all her legs are way too long, and um, well Matt, that would the anatomy book wouldn't help there. But I just mean she's just standing there. That's all she's doing. She's just standing straight up, and her her outfit's not that sexy. I mean it looks like she's covered in um, pot. Uh, the it does look look at look at that. It looks like weed, man. And then uh, the the picture at the bottom too, where she's looking up sort of in fear. I don't know. This does, I mean, she's a redhead, so I should be all over this. It doesn't do much for me at all. Okay. 
it ends with the mentions that she's serving with the Suicide Squad, which may or may not be a positive step for the troubled young woman. <laughs> Very nice for them to be so kind to her. Well, Gaiman put her in a weird place. That's right. He did. That's the issue with uh, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, and Poison Ivy. That's that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they share the cover. Yeah. So uh, next up is a double page spread. We're jamming in four characters here, though: Clayface one, Clayface two, Clayface three, and Clayface four, which of course had recently just become the Mud Pack, which was kind of the big thing that was going on. It talks about uh, Clayface. Wait, three. you gotta say who it's drawn by. Norm Brayfogle. Oh yes, great, it is. great Norm Brayfogle. Yes, yes. He in the uh, in the surprint of the first Clayface, we see a great pose of Batman and Robin, and Robin is drawn in a way I've never seen before. I can't think of where he's all highlights because he's in the shadow, and you just see the yellow cape, oh. the little R, and the I eyes didn't even of his notice man. that. Yeah, I dig that. It looks. Great. I can't think point. I've ever seen that before. Robin drawn that way. I've seen great. Batman done that way. You've before. You've seen before. Batman, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Norm Brayfogle, you're so you're yeah. so good. Yeah, and I love the way he draws Batman pulling the cape up over his face. I the bat symbol's totally boss. Yeah, I like the first clay. The first clay face is the uh, Basil Carlo, the actor. He's got the big dagger. They give him space, and then there's Clayface two pouring the goo on himself. Clayface three, and then Clayface Clayface three, of course, is the one when the in the sort of exosuit, and then Clayface four is the female. And in the background, we see. Uh, Cobra, and as Chris mentions, it spoils the Clayface 3 and 4 relationship, because we see them smooching in the background, which isn't that sweet. Yeah, because uh, this entry apparently came out between issues uh, 1 and 2 of the Mudpack storyline. Okay, alright. Because that's what he's saying. He says it came out after the first part of Mudpack, so, and yeah. Now, I, for those of you who don't know the different Clayfaces, you know, it, Rob mentioned Basil Carlo. I mean, it's basically supposed to be Boris Karloff, you know, kind of thing. And then the second one is the more traditional uh, Clayface that you know from Batman animated series, just not as bulky. The third one, it, it looks an astonishingly amount like the superpowers uh, Mr. Freeze action figure. Uh, really does. And then the fourth one is well, it's just from the Outsiders. That's all you got to say. <laughs> I like that fourth one. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I, I like all these clay faces. Good I on really you. Did. Yeah, I thought they were cool. And I like the idea that they were all band together. It was cool stuff. And It's a great get, idea. Getting, getting a Brave Fogel to draw it is perfect. Cause yep. It's super, one of the great Batman artists. So. Next up is Raz Agul, or Ra's Agul, however the hell you want to say it. We're uh, not fighting over it this time, guys. We're not fighting over it. Drawn by Joe James. He's back. Carl Kiesel. We see him and Talia, and we see him coming out of the uh, Lazarus pit. We see him playing chess with Batman. I like how kind of annoyed Batman looks. He just looks frustrated that he's losing the game or something. He right. doesn't, he's, he's playing a game with, a, with what, as he calls it, the most dangerous man on the planet. But he just yeah. kind of looks annoyed, which is sort of funny. And then there's a silhouette of Batman and Rachel Ghoul dueling swords. But it kind of looks like they're holding giant scissors. Like they're well, gonna... it's weird because then there's the shadows of them fighting on the wall too. Right. Very yeah. strange. I think they're opening a supermarket together or something like that. <laughs> uh, so, and it gets into the whole, you know, their whole history, of course, together. Batman regards Roz as a lawbreaker whom he must stop. Hence, although Batman is strongly attracted to Talia, really attracted to Talia, as we know, uh, his ongoing war with her father continually comes between them. Um, it's not bad. I, I uh, it, There's got a kind of a James Bondy thing. I mean, Talia looks... Uh, very similar to um, Barbara Bach from the Spy Who Loved Me. She's got the gun oh, up yeah. on her hand, yeah. So got that going on. There's a little maybe too much. I'm not buying that he's 160 pounds and 6'3". No That's, way. That is some st- – you are one skinny dude if you're 6'3 and you're 160 
and he is not skinny. He's muscular. So that doesn't – I think that has got to be a mistake or something. I looked at his occupation, conqueror. Well, that's accurate. Yeah, but I mean – He looks a, little bit, looks a little bit like Liam Neeson too. I got to wonder what your tax code is when you put that in for your conqueror. <laughs> Let me look it up. Going to need a CPA for that one. <laughs> no. Um uh, Chris Franklin chimed in to say there were no real changes from Volume 1, proving that the Son of the Demon, which it had come out by then, uh, was almost immediately kicked out of continuity. I don't know that Son of the Demon was ever actually in continuity, though. Now I think about I, I it. I think it was immediately not in continuity. They let, they let Mike, Bar w, Mike W. Bar do it, and they're like, yeah, but the, yeah, but no. <laughs> it was like an Elseworld before there were Elseworlds. Yeah. So. Batman does I'm not, not have a son. No, 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 no. I'm not a huge fan of this drawing. Um, yeah, that's all right. I've, I've liked everything that we've seen by Joe James for the most part, but this one just doesn't work. I, now that you say she looks like a Bond girl, she totally does with that hair, but uh, it just doesn't do much for me. Okay. Well, we're at the last one, man. This is it. This is it. This is the last one, and thank goodness we go out on a winner. We've got Two-Face Woo-hoo. drawn by the great Mike Mignola. Hell yeah. That is a great – I mean, that's – you know, I mean, a lot of the listings are kind of done by the – B and C level guys. I mean, like, or new, new talent. Uh, Norm Bravig, of course, being an exception, but you know, like Joe James and some of these other people that are just, you're not, not as familiar with, but this one is great. And I love Two-Face. Two-Face got a bunch of good listings. The first one in the first series was done by Brian Bolland. So here he's by, oh, yeah. yeah, here's by Mike, Mike Mignola. It's great. It's interesting that they get into all the other guys that were Two-Face. Yeah, Briefly. they spent a lot of time on that. They spent a lot of time on that. And the, the copy about the other two faces is lifted directly from the original listing. Like, it's just cut and paste. It's the <laughs> same wordage and everything. Because it just mentions later actor Paul Sloan suffered an injury similar to Dent's and became the second criminal two-face, though his face was surgically repaired and his life restored. Still later, a man named George Blake used makeup to impersonate two-face and commit crimes that implicated Dent. And that's literally the same exact paragraph. Um so here it gets into uh, the, the whole thing about the freak explosion undid dense plastic surgery so completely to further prohibit further such cosmetic reconstruction. Drawing-wise, um, Mignola does a little visual quote from Batman Year One where we see Harvey Dent at his desk and Batman sort of loitering underneath it because that's mm-hmm. the scene where Gordon comes in and talks to Dent and Dent's like, I don't know Batman. And then there's Batman there. And then in the background, we see him there shooting at Batman and Robin. We see the scarred coin. And then there's a big close-up of his big, ugly face. So uh, <laughs> it's a really, really nice drawing. It's it's a wonderful drawing. It's fantastic. And I'm glad that we went out on a really good one. Yeah, if, if, if this is the end of comic book form Who's Who, this is a hell of a way to go. It's beautiful. I will say one thing. You said Mignola was, you know, they, they, they brought in one of the, you know, not B-listers. Actually, 1989, I don't know that he wasn't. I mean, he'd done what? Uh, Alpha Flight? A little bit of Hulk? He did the I mean, Phantom Stranger miniseries. Had he done it by this point, though? Yeah. Well, that's definitely B-lister, the Phantom Stranger. I mean, come on. Um <laughs> Either way, it's a gorgeous entry. Absolutely love it. Uh, Chris Franklin came in and just said nothing really had changed except that Gilda Dent had become Grace Dent uh, in the Secret Origin special and was now listed in that here that way, and that name would be used in Batman the Animated Series. So I love it. It's yep. a hell of a way to go out. So yep. That's it, folks. That's who's who. Um, wow. We, we did, did it. Kind of. Kind of. Sort of. <laughs> well, why don't we take a break? Uh, we're going to go do some shots uh, to celebrate. And when we come back, we're going to do your listener feedback. Doom Patrol. 1963. 
Doom Patrol debut. My Greatest Adventure issue 80. 1964. My Greatest Adventure renamed Doom Patrol. Issue 85. 1968. Doom Patrol destroyed. Issue 121. 1976. The new Doom Patrol. Showcase 94. 1987. Doom Patrol Volume 2. Copperberg Lytle. 1989. Morrison and Case. Issue 19. 1993. Pollack. Issue 64. 2001. Doom Patrol Volume 3. Arcudi Hewitt. 2004. Doom Patrol Volume 4. Burn. Shush. 2009. Doom Patrol Volume 5. Giffen Clark. 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016. Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, because we're waiting. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio and Podbean.com. Hello, listeners. It's your friend, PJ Frightful. That's PJ, as in podcast jockey. And I'm dropping dreadful new episodes every two weeks. When the clock strikes midnight, the podcasting hour shines a candle on the dark corners of DC Comics. Those supernatural sagas of Swamp Thing, Dead Man, The Spectre, and more. The podcasting hour. It's a rotating anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks, Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. For it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Coming this Halloween, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware. And we're back, folks, and it's time for your feedback in a segment we call Who's Who's, How's, and Why's. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to read your iTunes reviews. We sincerely appreciate these, folks. The iTunes reviews are so important. They really help raise the profile of the show. And ever since we moved the Who's Who show from the main Fire and Water Podcast feed to its own feed, you know, we're sort of in a rebuilding mode. So the old who's, I'm sorry, the old Fire and Water feed has a hundred reviews, most of which, well not most, many of which were for the Who's Who show. Uh, the new feed only has 26 reviews. We could certainly use some more. So let's go ahead and dive into those new Who's Who entry, I'm sorry, the new iTunes reviews that we've gotten for Who's Who in the last two months. And we're done. Seriously, you people? Okay, guys, I'm a little miffed here. You know, every month or Every other month, whatever, when we get these out, I ask if you could please submit a, uh, an iTunes review. We really appreciate it. Blah, blah, blah. It's important. Blah, 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 blah. Not one. Really? Okay. I'm a little offended. You know? Um, see if I come to your next birthday party. I'm just saying. All right? 
Well, let's move on to the people who do care about us and, and cover their comments. These are going to come from our website, email, social media, stuff like that. We're just going to cherry pick some comments because, again, like we said, 43 comments on this last episode uh, This before we even get to social media. So we've got to just pull bits and pieces to try and cover the as fast as we can. So we heard from our buddy Joe X. And we had commented on some of the uh, Blackhawk entries. We weren't sure if it was uh, Stephen DiStefano, and he, in fact, said, confirmed, yes, that is definitely Stephen DiStefano's style and his signature. Swing! Perfect. Good call, Rob. Thank you. And, and he said, uh, regarding Golden Eagle, because we talked about that outfit, looked really cool, but we didn't really remember being around. And he says, I think Golden Eagle wore this outfit in Teen Titans just to get killed in the, teen, in the Titans hunt. But he got better. <laughs> Uh, he also mentions about Dick Sprang. He says Dick Sprang drew three covers for Detectives 622 to 624 for a story featuring the Batman comic within the DCU and then a two-issue Two-Face flip book. I vaguely remember that, but yeah, he's right. I Because I, I went on and on about the Dick Sprang. Well, you went on and on about the, uh, about the Prestige special, and I said, no, 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 he was in Detective Comics or Batman, and you no, he wasn't. And I'm like, no, no, he did a little story. It was a, like a parallel thing, dimension thing, or other world thing. You're like, no, no, no. So uh, this yeah, would be that, where that you Yeah, that does sound just like me. <laughs> this is where you would go, Shag, you were right. See, it's, it's not that hard to say. Hmm. Right, okay. So Joe then finished up by telling us, uh, he says, Chunk which we love Chunk. Chunk ended up with Flash's <laughs> with Flash's ex-girlfriend, who was a supermodel, because of course Chunk would end up with a supermodel, right? Connie. Uh, but Mark Wade dropped all the Messner Loeb supporting cast, which was a real bummer, because, you know, I, I don't know why he did that. I don't know what made his choice for that. So, we're from our buddy Michael Bailey, who does the Views from the Long Box podcast, the From Crisis to Crisis podcast, the Superman homepage, uh, stuff over the Radio KAL, and like a million other projects. And uh, he wrote in to say that uh, he, we were confirming, concurring back and forth, basically saying that the lack of Superman entries in uh, in the Who's Who '89 was just criminal. It was absolutely horrible, and he just he was he was deeply upset by it too. He was. He says, "Let's take Batman off the table for this argument." Rob is right. This was the summer of 1989. Everyone was into Batman. There was a lot of light on the character, and while I wasn't huge on the story in the Batman Annual from that summer, the tale in Detective Comics Annual Number 2 was fantastic. It makes sense that you would roll out the Batman heroes and villains, and for the most part, I like those entries quite a bit. Yep, absolutely. And then uh, we, or maybe it was me, I beat on Cat Grant quite a bit there, just talking about her entry was just really painted a poor picture of her. He says, Cat Grant, man, what a complicated character right from the start. It's unfortunate that this entry paints her in that bad light because she was always such an awesome part of Clark's supporting cast for me. For one thing, she was interested in Clark, not Superman. That's an interesting distinction. Uh, he says, this helped make her a real character to me instead of two-dimensional version that Jeff Johns would write during his stint on Action Comics. Bringing in her son and talking about her relationships with a variety of men came out of her own personal pain over the estrangement from her son. Wow. Uh, not that it's anyone's business who she sleeps with. Uh, if she were male, it wouldn't be an issue and high fives would be all around. One misstep was her brief. <laughs> the one misstep was her very brief special episode esque bout with alcoholism where she tried to seduce Jimmy Olsen. You know, you've hit rock bottom when you're trying to score with Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy, leave the signal watch on. Uh, he, mentions, oh uh, he mentions Jason Todd first appeared in Batman number 357. That was also the first appearance of Croc, a later Killer Croc. Detective Comics 526 was the issue where Bruce decides to adopt Jason after Dick Grayson got his parents killed. Yeah, I, uh, Mike is right. I think I said that his first appearance was in Detective 526, which is not, not correct. Seriously, Dick, 
uh, Grayson enlisted the Todds to help in the investigation of Croc, and they ended up getting aced for their troubles. I don't know what Dick was thinking. Just because he was a circus aerialist that could fight crime doesn't mean everyone that swings him a trapeze can also go up against crime lords. Dick even wanted to adopt Jason himself, but Bruce wisely stepped in. Wow, I didn't realize that, that that's how his parents died. I knew they died uh, dealing with Killer Croc. I just assumed it was another cut the trapeze thing. Wow, that's awful. Now, you say that's the first appearance of Killer Croc. Do you know where Killer Croc's original intended first appearance was? Uh, I am gonna. I do not. I do not know. I am gonna just throw it out there and say Firestorm. Firestorm, the Nuclear Man, number seven, was go. where it was intended to be. The the aborted series that got or not, but this series got canceled at issue five. Right. Issue six introduced Typhoon, which never saw publication uh, until years later. And number seven was going to be. Croc, and it was called mm-hmm. the Reptile Man. He really point. sat in the drawer a long time. Then he did. He really did. So, all right. Uh, and then Mike goes on to say he po- he put this out there completely on Facebook for out of the blue. It says Shag, Ma- Shag Matthews and Rob Kelly talk about magenta or uh, magenta. I'm sorry, uh, or magenta, 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 right? Magenta. Oh yeah. Uh, Shag and Rob talk about magenta on the Who's Who podcast. Now she's on the Flash. Proof. I just love that. That's right. Proof that we make crap happen or that they listen to us, one or the other. <laughs> then Michael Bailey and Frank had a fight. Um, <laughs> a big, long back and forth. Actually, it was very civil, but uh, they really went at it for a while. So Then we heard from our buddy Zoom Yukinori, who does the Zoom's Who section you'll hear about just a little bit. He does over at the CB Everett uh, CBR. He does the line it is drawn, and he has his own blog. He talked about the Matrix Supergirl. He says the protoplasm – this is interesting. The protoplasm used to create Matrix was a nod to Lex Luthor's Silver Age origin in Adventure Comics number 271. Pre-Crisis Lex Luthor created an artificial protoplasmic life form and later used some of that protoplasmic material to create a, quote, kryptonite antidote for Superboy. And he did this as a thank you for Superboy for building his laboratory, which Superboy did as a thank you for Luthor saving his life. Then, as we all know from the Super Friends, a fire started, and in trying to put it out, Superboy destroyed both the scientific achievements along with Luthor's hair. I had no idea that that was all a nod to that. That's really interesting. And then uh, he made the, uh, the, the comment that Vicky Vale Vicky – Vale, Vicky Vale uh, – he said he, he found that in the 1989 movie, he felt like that take on the character was more like Silver St. Cloud than more like Lois Lane, which is interesting. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Put a pin in that. Then in Flash 2, which was Barry Allen, I had said, boy, this might be one of the last times Carmen Infantino draws the Flash. And, of course, I'm completely infallible. So Zoom came back to say Carmen Infantino had illustrated Barry Allen Flash at least two more times since his entry. One was the story in the 1990 Flash special number one, the one that introduced the 27th century uh, Flash John Fox. And the other was the cover to the Flash issue from the Silver Age event in the year 2000. Huh. Right. Uh, he mentions uh, regarding Joan Garrick. Joan actually received some of the Cockerel's stolen time along with Jay Garrick in the case spotlight and also Squadron Number 3. So logic would dictate that she should not have been aged as she was. But each person is different, so I suppose each person would react to the stolen time differently. I love how complicated that gets because then it's like, well, what happens if any of these people had children? And right. they age rapidly, and they age normal, and then like their parents stay young, and what like all their friends like it just opens up such a hornet's nest of allowing like the spouses to get the stolen time that it just it becomes really untenable, and I just sort of like it the more you think about it. I liked my bodily fluid exchanging theory, but anyway, okay. um, 
uh, we talked about capitalistic couriers last issue, and the K's were backwards, and I said, like, the Russian letter K. Well, because Zoom is a genius, points out that there is no backwards letter K in the Russian alphabet. Instead, uh, they were probably thinking of this particular character, which looks like, it looks like two K's back-to-back, like one facing one way, one facing the other, but it's a Russian symbol pronounced Z, I guess is how you say it, or Z. So, uh, wow, really, very knowledgeable. He knows a lot Uh, of stuff, that Zoom. Zoom is amazing, and he's got this, like, the most amazing voice, too. I mean, just makes me sick how amazing his voice is. Anyway, Jeff Nuttleton then came in and said, in the 1989 Batman film, uh, it had been in development for for nearly 10 years. The early drafts were based on the then-recent stories by Engelhardt and Rogers, which did feature Silver St. Cloud. And she was going to be the love interest in the film, but it was later changed to Vicki Vale, which explains why Zoom felt that. Hmm. Very interesting. They're from our buddy Siskoid uh, from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He's also in the First Strike Invasion podcast, uh, which has inspired the CW crossover this year. Oh, Hot Moo or Not, Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast. Give me that Star Trek and apparently every other show we do on the network. Um, he says, Flamebird. Says, this character means a lot to me because of a play-by-email superhero game I used to run and play with my friends. He says he played the Tangent Flash, and his good friend Mel played Flamebird. And uh, he thinks, I, I think, entirely based on seeing her in the Loose Leaf Who's Who. There was a Nightwing, and she loved to moon about after him and make a fool of herself when he was around, and her character and mine were extremely catty with each other. <laughs> Sounds like a fun gaming session. <laughs> Uh, he says the Marvel Universe eventually did specials based on specific eras, and I'd love Who's Who to come back and do the same, though there are far few living, far fewer living Golden and Silver Age artists than there used to be. Maybe with modern artists doing pastiche, but I'd be into it. Yeah, that's true. There just aren't hardly anybody around anymore that you could get to do those listings. So, yeah, you'd probably have to get a lot of some of like the newer guys who can ape the style if they wanted to do something retro. But, yeah, it's a sad thing to think about, but how many of the classic – artists we saw in who's who uh, are not with us anymore it's unfortunate yeah. yeah the marvel books were great like they did marvel universe the, the marvel handbook the uni- or marvel marvel handbook whatever marvel handbook the 80s and it would be basically it, it the the entries were written as if they were written on december 31st 1989 that's how it was isn't that clever so all the entries were written as if it was a time capsule from that period. This, it's really fun. I love them. I, I picked up a couple of them. Interesting. And they did a 70s and stuff like that, too. Hmm. Uh, we got a message from Sphinx Magoo. He Woo-hoo! says, regarding the Matrix entry, the only possible reason why there's no period at the end of the entry, because dot, 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 the adventures continue. <laughs> well played, Sphinx. Well played. He's got the answer to every riddle. Riddle. I uh, heard from our buddy, again, Chris Franklin. We were friends earlier. Uh, he says, uh, as it was pointed out in the Secret Origins episode, Mal Duncan is really DC's first black superhero. Everyone always points to Jon Stewart, but Mal, uh, but he was only an occasional supporting player. Mal was in almost every issue of the Titans after he debuted. Hmm. Interesting. He says, I'm with Tom. I hated the whole Batman-fired Dick Grayson thing. It undermined the beautiful work Wolfman, Conway, and Menich did on the amicable split between Bruce and Dick. And it made Batman look like a real moron. My 19-year-old ward, who was trained at death-defying acrobatics, can't handle this job. I know. I'll grab a kid off the street who knows how to use a crowbar. Jason's history is Robin begins and ends with a tire iron smash crowbar. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I've never heard that thought before. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, Chris, you're a horrible person. Um, he goes on to say, I will say that I have to agree with Shag. 
I can just stop there, right? Um, oh, okay. I have to agree with Shag. Max Allen Collins' version of Jason, Todd, may have been a street kid, but he wasn't unlikable. Denny O'Neill had said fans reacted negatively to the new Jason. So when Starlin came in and didn't like Robin to begin with, he had the marching orders to make him even more unlikable so they could pull that stunt uh, or either with either shelve him or kill him. So that's what I was referencing last time. You said, you know, uh, that Jason Todd was just annoying. And, and I seem to recall lots of people saying that he wasn't really that way. And it was only right before killing, uh, not killing joke, but uh, death in the family where he became really obnoxious. Thank you, Chris. Uh, and then talking about Carmen Infantino drawing uh, Barry Allen. He says, Shag, you of all people should know Carmen Infantino draws an excellent Barry Allen flash in the Who's Who entry for the Loose Leafs edition. For shame. Um, you know, faced with just all this evidence from Zoom and Chris, I just choose to deny it. I'm right. <laughs> Wrong. Didn't happen. Uh, our pal Bradley Null, who uh, is very supportive of the show over on Instagram, uh, he says, as I don't have access to my 90s annuals, all boxed and in storage, I won't be showing pictures on Instagram this time. It's, oh. been a, it's been a while since I listened without the books. It still works, just weird after all this time. Oh, wait, it's all in the other page. Maybe more coffee is needed. I just sort of like this sort of like it's like a diary journal. He's just sort of saying <laughs> random things. And it's true. All of the all the entries are right there on the website. Good point. Yeah. Uh, Philemon, who's uh, generally wreaking havoc, says, I figured it out, Shag. Your coverage of the annuals this time around was designed to make me look forward to the Loose Leaf editions, right? No offense, but your usually stellar coverage, um, no offense to your usually stellar coverage, but this was a bit of a slog through some of those mediocre entries. <laughs> you thought last issue was bad. Anyway, uh, despite this averageness of the source material, the podcast itself was pleasant. It was a pleasant way to end my summer before going back to educate the youth of America. He goes, yep, I'm going to keep bringing this up since it gives Shag says consternation. Uh, yeah, it bothers me that Philemon's responsible for the future of America. But uh, Philemon usually says the exact opposite of what makes sense. However... I think he took his meds this month because uh, a couple of his comments says, I'm still not convinced that a who's who entry without the yellow dots can properly be called a who's who entry. You know what? I'm right there with you, bro. Then he says, uh, I mentioned a particular Nickelodeon show last time called The Third Eye because you talked about uh, video, video comics. And he says, I love The Third Eye, Shag. I've made that uh, made that same YouTube search countless times. Today, Today's kids will never understand how cool Nickelodeon was back in those early days. Well, Philemon, I just have this to say. I deny you the nidus. Uh, we heard from our buddy Jeff R., who – Jeff is uh, always responsible for the egregious omission of the month. And uh, Jeff, since since the annuals really were one big entry, we broke it into two. I think you're off the hook for the second half. But I tasked Jeff and said, Jeff, I need you to come up with some egregious omissions for Superman because, you know, we got almost nothing. So he he said that, you know, what seems to be the obvious choice would be Mongol, but it, it doesn't work because Mongol had just been reintroduced. He says he would he would have suggest an updated version of Gangbuster, explaining all that business where Superman took over the identity for a while, and then an updated one for Intergang, because there hasn't been one since post-crisis. Good suggestions, Jeff. Thank you. We got a message from Robert Markham. He says, the Robin 1 entry states him to be two inches taller than in any of his entries as Nightwing from 85, 87 to 90, six foot rather than 510. They all do agree on his weight, 175. Also, Alfred's entry shows him bandaging Bruce's arm with the sleeve still on. Normally, it would be removed first. Vicki Vale not only appeared in the 1989 Batman movie, but also in the 1949 serial where she was played by Jane Addams 
that's funny. Jane Adams uh, co-starred with Rondo Hatton in The Brute Man. So no, it goes back to Rondo Hatton. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and Batman and Robin were played by Robert Lowry and Johnny Duncan. You need to find a guardian forever to contact Alexander Courage. He died in 2008. <laughs> I mentioned I was going to hire Alexander Courage to do a theme for Who's Who in Star Trek. Well, thank you for that comment, Robert. You know, it's funny. Like, uh, uh, this is me just being pithy. But you know, his enter, like his his comments reads a lot like the letters that would appear in the Who's Who comic. You know, when they would print letters from people back then, mm-hmm. like the beginning part about the, uh, the matching up the stuff. I think that's funny. Cracks me up. So great job, thank you, Robert. Uh, and our buddy from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, and also the Legion Super Bloggers, he he we picked his brain in advance about Supergirl, and uh, he thanked us for including it in the show. And he says, "I hold the first fifty issues of Peter David's Supergirl as an excellent example of long form writing. There was a major arc happening during those individual issues." And also, Ange uh, posted over on Twitter and tagged us. He posted a picture of Zatanna from the Secret Files and Origins, which is sort of the successor to Who's Who, and uh, that was a really cool drawing to post. Thank you for that. We appreciate that. Very cool. Jeff Nettleton writes in, he says, Chaykin's Blackhawk story is fine, uh, but I'd always felt his time frames were a bit wonky. He has Blackhawk being grilled about fighting in Spain with the leftists, and yet it's still wartime. The witch hunts didn't really take hold until about 47-48. It had me confused at the start of the series. For my money, Mike Grell had the best turn with it when he did the action com- first action comic weekly storyline where he basically turned Blackhawk into Steve Canyon. That was a lot of fun, and I would have liked to have seen him do more with the character. I liked Marty Pasco's stuff for what it was, but I think Grell would have kept it a bit more grounded in adventure rather than politics. Incidentally, I believe Merzy was an homage to a similar character in the early days of Steve Canyon. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> he always brings lots of knowledge. Uh, our pal Ryan Daly from the uh, network, who does Secret Origins, still around, almost, almost gone, but still around. <laughs> Power Fishnets, giving us Star Wars, plus the new one, It's Midnight, the podcasting hour. He says, Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, brought to you by the Secret Origins podcast. I know you guys said this episode was sponsored by Brainstock Trades and The Only Living Boy, but you only plugged them once, whereas Shag mentioned my show 137 times. That was on purpose, Ryan. I think hopefully you got the hint. Quit stealing our guests. Our uh, friends. He says, on one hand, I love the fact that a lesser-known character is getting a ton of new exposure from the DC Girls line of comics, as well as merchandise, referring to Bumblebee. Oh, uh, I was this, wondering where we're yeah, going. This is a character that's two different model figures, dolls, and toy stores right now. It's awesome that young girls of color have some representation in the DC superhero toy sphere. But could DC really not come up with another character to break this barrier? Vixen was the first black member of the Justice League. She's got an animated web series, and she's appearing in the CW-verse television shows Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow. If DC's is going to promote a positive black female hero, as if they can only do one at any given time, Vixen ought to be the hero they push. Vixen has the highest ceiling in terms of mass appeal and movie potential. She's not part of the DC Heroes superhero girl line? No. That's crazy. No. I'm mad that Mira's not in there. I'm frustrated that, uh, yeah, I'm like, Mira's a big deal, but... You know, I mean, I'm just amazed. It's like Bumblebee. I think I mentioned that. I was like, I'm looking Bumblebee. I'm in Target. I'm looking at Bumblebee. <laughs> you know, it's just amazing. I mean, again, I don't begrudge it. I think they were doing that because they did want to have a, a more diverse group of, of uh, people, girls represented, which is great. I'm completely okay with that. But it's just sort of funny that, like, this Z-level character at these comics is now has a toy in a major department store. It's oh, yeah. Amazing stuff. Uh, our pal Gene Hendricks from the Hammer Strikes podcast and blog, Legend, the Superheroes, Quantum Cast, and more shows on Two True Freaks says, Is it just me or does Alfred look like Vincent Price in the Serpent? Now Price's voice is going to be battling with that from Zimbalist Room when I read my Batman comics. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear Michael go. Uh, I, I just can't help it. 
after the uh, that is the Diet Coke commercial. I oddly enough is what oh, stuck God, in my yeah. head. Yeah, I forgot about that. Oh God, oh boy. Uh, Jeff Nettleton comes back and he says DC's war comics were generally pretty good for the details. They took a few liberties here and there. I think part of it was that many of their artists, at least the classic era of those books, had served in the military or grew up during World War II or Korea where kids poured over the details. Some, like Sam Gladsman, were combat veterans. Gladsman's A Sailor's Story, new edition from Dover, as well as his USS Stevens stories from D.C., is a terrific depiction of not only his experiences in World War II, but also the day-to-day life of the Navy. I served over 40 years later, and it wasn't that different, apart from the kamikaze attacks. <laughs> Sergeant Fury, not as much, although they got the gear right. Dick Ayers had served, and I suspect John Severin had as well. For all the criticism Michael Golden got on the NAM for his cartoony look, he actually had a really good eye for the equipment details. Web gear looked like web gear. Uh, weapons looked like weapons. Uh, he also writes PPS, Hawker! Well, you forgot to do it last episode. You I said did. you were gonna, I and know, you did and then I forgot. Yes, he added it for us. And he says, oh, no, oh, no discussion of the Blackhawks is complete without mentioning Mollywood's Black and Blue Hawks from Mad. That thing is hilarious and on the nose. Yeah, I had forgotten all about that. That is a really great parody of uh, the Blackhawks. And that, that's how big the Blackhawks were. They were parodied in Mad Magazine. You know, that's like they awesome. were enough enough to be parodied in Mad by Bollywood yet. I, I love that Jeff not only came in and shared all this information because, I mean, Jeff is our uh, – our- our, our war guy that we kind of fall back on and, you know, our, our, our soldier military person that, you know, has a better understanding how the military machine works and, and how it relates to comics. And we always appreciate that kind of feedback. So thank you. And I'm telling you, I'm, I'm waiting Jeff for your war comics podcast to start. Just well, speaking of that, we have somebody who gets close, we get close to that. We have Mike LaCroix who does the Canadian military history podcast. And he says, thanks for beating – thanks for the beating with regards to my typo when your iTunes are few. My attempt to make light of your who gets billing first over the other bounce right back at me. Well played. Hopefully Michael Billy gets a kick out of it. Indirect payback, so to speak. With regards to military people and depictions of military in the comics, yes, military people military people do get nitpicky over these types of details. For example, J.A. Combat in the Haunted Tank, Lieutenant Jeb Stewart – and his crew were often shown just driving around in their tank having adventures with the ghost of General Stewart. The truth is that tanks are useless on their own. They are noisy, they have or had limited visibility, and cannot hold ground. Tanks move in squadrons and in regiments with infantry and artillery in support. They move in bounds with cover from flanking units or in line with 360-degree coverage. One tank driving around the battlefield with a lieutenant... American pronunciation here. I meant to say lieutenant. Hanging yeah. out the top is useless. Tankers will now rebut everything I've said, but they know it's true. That's so <laughs> funny. Like a whole little fight going on here. That's a, well. I mean, you know, uh, Mike is. Uh, I, I don't know what branch he may have served in, but obviously Jeff's Navy. So if Mike's Army, you know, well, it's Canadian, but there's quite a rivalry there. Uh, he also says the other offender is haircuts. Military people depicted with long hair, sideburns, even goatees. It's all BS. <laughs> That's awesome. Guys, I, seriously, Jeff and Mike, thank you so much for this information. Yeah, I love that real-world detail, yeah. I love it. Absolutely do. Heard from our buddy Jimmy McGlinchey, who I believe is actually an erratic Irish leprechaun. Um, <laughs> he wrote in to comment about Vicki Vale. He says that she also discovered that Batman's identity around the time of the Battle for the Cowl. This is when uh, Batman had died after Final Crisis, and they were trying to figure out who was going to be the new Batman. And uh, so she had figured out Batman's identity around Battle for the Cowl, Return of Bruce Wayne period, but ultimately withheld publishing it. She also appeared in New 52 in the Batman Eternal series. Hmm. Stop the presses. He also mentions Bumblebee. Bumblebee was also part of the Doom Patrol under Giffen and Clark and fitted right. in well with the regular team and had a key role in the recent Titans Hunt miniseries that led into Rebirth. 
Look at that. I, I really appreciate uh, Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast writing in to say that. Oh, wait, he didn't. So <laughs> He's too busy comparing me to Barney Rubble in the uh, last episode of Pod Dylan. Something like that, but more so, he's uh, he's celebrating a, that he's been waiting for Doom all this That's time. True. He doesn't he's happy. Have, he's got a book to read. Yeah, he only has to wait thirty days of, between nowadays. Herb, my buddy Jose Rivera, he goes. You know that Golden Eagle design has always struck me. I remember playing with him, Stargazer, Steel Will, and the other Silverhawks when I was a kid. Oh, oh, wait, <laughs> that didn't seem right. And what I love about that is. Dude, I totally loved the Silverhawks, too. I was totally into the Silverhawks as a kid. I used to, like, draw my own Silverhawks, like, make up my own characters. I was so into the Silverhawks. He says, also for that RT Bear Batman, it looks there should be a word balloon attached that says, Extreme! <laughs> He's, like, drinking Mountain Dew while going off a cliff or something like that. Jeez. Oh, uh, Phil Wagner writes in and says, I read... I re- wrote in to say, I recently came across a book at my local public library that might be of interest to you and your Who's Who listeners. It's entitled The League of Regrettable Superheroes by John Morris, published by Quirk, 2015. It's a very tongue-in-cheek affair listing of some of the oddest and most offbeat superhero creations from the golden age of the present, including such Who's Who stalwarts as Red B. I I had a ball reading the book and even purchased a copy at my local used bookstore to keep it for the reference. I don't know if it's worth an episode of Who's Who to review, but it is a book I highly recommend for any fans of superhero comic book history. Uh, I do have to mention that I uh, helped out with that book because uh, there's, there's a, a chapter – not a chapter. There's like a couple of pages on Hollow Man, the one-off character from Power Records, and the uh, editors of that book did not have scans of the Hollow Man comic, and they asked me because I do the Power Records blog. So those scans are courtesy of me, and my name is in that book somewhere. Oh, that's awesome. Yep. Well, Phil, Phil you had me at the Red Bee, so – It's a fun book. It's a fun book. It really. That's is. cool. Uh, so, what was the name of it again? Then uh, the the what is it? The gallery. The, the League, League of Regrettable, of Regrettable Superheroes, Superheroes by John Morris. Yeah, the League of Regrettable Superheroes. That sounds like it's worth checking out. Yep. Uh, my pal Chuck Coletta, he says, FYI, in case anyone was unaware, the 1992 JSA series is finally coming out as a trade paperback later this year, and he provides the link. Thank you, Chuck. Chuck always manages to find stuff, whether it's YouTube videos or links. He is like a great footnote guy. I'm sure it's because of his pr- pr- professorial background. But he's always providing uh, little background information and stuff, which is great. This 1992 JSA series, folks, is wonderful. If it's the one I'm thinking of. It's, it's the 10-issue series right, the drawn by Mike Parabek. And the JSA looks like they step out of a Bruce Timm sort of thing. And it's just, oh, my gosh. It's just, I absolutely love it. Absolutely. It's where Jesse Quick was created. All right. Uh, Diablo Frank from the World Spine Podcast Network, Marvel Superheroes, Bloodlines, Idolhead of Diablo, Wonder Woman, Power of the Atom, plus blogs. He says, the lion's share of my interest in Blackhawk comes down to how Jim Steranko described the book in his history of comics, not any actual stories I'd read. He was a big hit in his day and got the movie serial, which I also respect, but from Conway to Evanier to Chaikin to Pasco, I shrug at his stories. Well, of course, I've never gone back to the 1940s material Steranko loved, which might be the problem. Uh, he went on to comment a whole bunch of uh, just quick fire comments on the Titan stuff. And he says, Flamebird is so oversold as a beauty in the entry that Perez's photorealistic headshot of a slightly older Tara Markov really undercuts it. Um, I got to disagree with you, Frank. I don't think she looks like Tara. I, I don't see it. Tara had a very distinct kind of face and a very distinct kind of nose. And I just don't see it with Flamebird. I see Elizabeth Shue big time. So I, I'm going to have to say Frank is wrong. So, uh, and then he says, goes on, I like this bit, antithesis and gargoyle can go away. <laughs> I think we all felt that way about that entry. 
Then he says, you know, we're always, uh, whenever a Wonder Woman thing comes up, we're always trying to tell people where to find more on Wonder Woman. And we cite his podcast, and he says there is a, now another active monthly Wonder Woman podcast hosted by an actual female-type human person called <laughs> Warrior for Peace that chronologically indexes her appearance in the Golden Age, post-Legends, and New 52, plus her 1970s TV series. And you can find it at wonderwomanwarriorforpeace.wordpress.com. Awesome. Thank you. Then we heard from our buddy Anthony Durso, who does those awesome custom Mego boxes. He says, not a fan of these entries so far. In fact, I only remember them from two ends of the spectrum. How bad they are, see Matrix, or how good they could be, see Perez's T- Titans West. The Perez ones, and a few others like the Infantino and Cuber Flashes, for example, seem like they could have been part of the Who's Who original 26-issue run. While the bad ones, almost Anything featuring a supporting cast member would fit right in with the horrible, lackluster issues of the updates. A transitional period, to say the least. Bring on the loose leaf. I couldn't agree more, Anthony. Everybody's excited about the loose leaf. Uh, Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl says, My favorite Black Hawk remains the Evanier Spiegel stuff. It was just splendid. Martin, you're entirely right. I mean, I've already said that many, many times before. but Good job, Martin. Uh, bait, hook, uh, sing, what a but it helps if I get the line right. He, he totally baited you and you took it, pal. He was just trying to get his name right on the show. Um, my buddy Dave Walker from the Flash Legacies podcast, we talked about Mason Trollbridge, and we just thought his name was the best thing ever. He says, in case you don't know, Mason Trollbridge was referenced in the first season of the Flash TV series. Kind of. The reporter that Iris idolized and had figured out uh, Wells was a bad guy was called Mason Bridge, and I'm pretty sure that was referencing this character. Very cool. Thanks, Dave. Hmm. Chris Lewis says, wait, what? No love for the heckler? I love that comic in the early 1990s. As the resident JLI aficionado, how can you not love a series by Keith Giffen at his most Giffen-y? It is all the fourth wall breaking of Ambush Bug, the typically lumpy Giffen art of the era, some great running gags, impossibly powered supervillains, and it's chock full of absurdist parodying of superheroics. What's not to love? Looking forward to your reading of the self-aware loose-leaf entry of the heckler for the 1993 loose-leaf update. Hey, look at that. We just mentioned the heckler on the show once again. Did we did we diss the heckler? I have no memory of that. Um, I've maybe I don't know. I, I don't remember. I know I've talked about the heckler recently in basically saying that he's. I get what Giffen's going for. He, I, it, I think it was more on Secret Origins that we talked about it. But he's you know he's sort of like Ambush Bug, but just a more modern day Ambush Bug with a little bit of craziness. I, I like the heckler conceptually. Some of his issues didn't grab me. Any of the, the flying buttress things like that. But. Um, yeah, it's nothing wrong with Heckler, and now we've said the name like eight times, Chris, so congratulations. Well done. He's going to keep writing in every month talk about the Heckler, you know. Then we got uh, a note from someone whose name is just Grr. <laughs> I'm sure it's somebody we're supposed to know, and I'm, I'm forgetting a joke. But anyway, um, they ranked the annuals in the podcast from their most favorite to least. So their first favorite was Secret Origins. said, not only did the book have all new entries with the exception of the Herald, but George Perez's artwork makes it my favorite of the five books covered. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know that I'm going to argue with that. Good point. And I'm not going to rate the other ones here, but I will just say, and he goes, he points at something very interesting. He says, also, you guys forgot to discuss the two-page entry for Blackhawk Express. I believe it was the end. It was at the end at the end of the other entries from the Blackhawk Annual, and didn't include much beyond the artwork and a short description. But it's definitely a who's who entry, huh? We missed yeah. one. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what he was referring to. Maybe we'll put it in the director's cut. <laughs> Maybe so. We'll have another whole episode just on that that listing. Uh, We're going to turn all the uh, guns in our walkie-talkies, too. Yeah, exactly. Grant Richter from Unearthly Visions blog, which is dedicated uh, a blog dedicated to the, to the vision. 
He says, I really appreciate the time and effort you two have put into covering all the updates, especially Update 88 and the 89 annual so far. As a kid, my interest in DC had begun to wane around the time of Millennium, surprise, and it had dropped, <laughs> <laughs> and it dropped off completely by invasion. I wouldn't jump back in until the beginning of the reign of the Superman in 93, so there was quite a gap of knowledge for me. I was wandering around the DC universe asking myself, why does Luther look like Ginger Amish? Why does Nightwing have a ponytail mullet? And who the hell is Bloodwind? I look forward to the info dump and can't wait for the loose leaves. Well, the good news is, Grant, we are going to cover all that. The bad news is you're really never going to get that Bloodwind answer, buddy. No. Uh, I, anyway, I uh, heard from Jeff Peterson. He says, if I never again have to hear Shag drone on in minute detail about Supergirl, the Legion of Superheroes, and pocket universes, it will be too soon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Screw you, too. <laughs> Remember my buddy Dale Russell, he says, it sounds like when Rob saw the Dick Sprang artwork, he had a Dick Sprang moment and almost knocked his laptop across the room. Oof, okay. Uh, Abel uh, Padilla says, I was happy to hear about the tentative plans for covering future, future Who's Who volumes. And he asked about the Legion Who's Who entry. I just want to be perfectly clear, so I'm afraid there might have been some confusion on Facebook. What we're doing is we're bringing in the Legion of Super Bloggers to help us cover the Legion Who's Who entries. So uh, that will be coming up in the near future. Then heard from Adam Ackerman, and uh, he shared a sort of a meme on Facebook, which is cute. It was a Doctor Who talons of Wang Chiang, but it was about the racist name of Chop Chop from Blackhawks. It was pretty funny. I dug it. Then Kevin Thomas King said, "Had this he uh, we talked about Art T Bear and that Nightwing." drawing and he said he had that poster on his wall for years so very cool then we heard from uh rob williams from the generation x-wing podcast he says that he dug up some of his old who's who uh, loosely if he was enjoying the three ring binder concept gorgeous art and he posted some of that on social media awesome 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 thank you sir Heard from Craig R. McD. He said the profile pages were great in those as someone who was relatively new to comics they were great sources of information then Alessandro said uh, Betty, who used to be Flamebird but is now Hawkfire, could still appear in Titans. She's not being used in Detective Comics anyway. And my question following up on that is, huh? Flamebird is now Hawkfire? Really? Can someone validate this for me? That's news to me. Then we heard from Sean, who goes by Sergey Bomba. He says, uh, we talked about a couple different artists last episode, and we were like, well, I don't know who this person is. But he said, uh, Dennis Roder's big DC work was in inking action comics for seven years before, during, and after the death of Superman. And then Tim Dazon inked Greg LaRock on Flash for a bit in, the, in 1989, mostly worked at Marvel, though. And then Mike Hodor, Mike Hodor did something awesome. He took several Who's Who covers and used this app on his iPad or tablet or whatever to create a jigsaw puzzle with it. He said that Who's Who covers make great jigsaw puzzles. And he says if you go on iOS and search for 1,000 jigsaw puzzles, he says there's a few of them, but any of them will work. So you just you, you, you get that thing and you upload your image and you make it into a cross uh, make it into a jigsaw puzzle. How cool is that? That's pretty amazing. My wife's been doing jigsaw puzzles lately on her iPad, and I, I might have to give that a try. Hmm. Uh, and now we're on to the social media. These are people that shared the show on their social media timeline, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we have a whole list of names, but we do want to recognize each person that helps promote the show. Each and every one of you guys and girls are an important part of the Who's Who community. So this is, we're going to mention everybody here. So let's, uh, let's get ready. Here we go. Aaron Head Moss. Al Girding, a.k.a. Van Z, Alan Middleton, Ange, Batman Top News, Between the Pages, Black Canary DC, Brett Booth, Buck Rowlett, 
Fuck my life. Chris Franklin, <laughs> Chris Lewis, Chuck Rodriguez, Comic Reflections, Craig 101, Daniel Budnick, Daniel Cynical Adams, David Finn, David Ace Gutierrez, David Morgan, DC in the 80s, Deadpool's Unicorn, Dr. G Nerdologist, Dread, Jacob, John Ara, Jared West, Jeffrey Brown, Joe Slav, Jonathan Brown, Justice League, Cal Leo, Keechi Baker, Con L, Lamar Scott, Longbox Crusade, Lost My Place, Mario, Mar- Martin Gray, Mai, uh, Michael Bailey, Mike Peacock, Paul Hicks, Richard Field, Rift, Ryan Daly, Silver Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Speed Force, Stephen Bird, Sin, Tamara, The Batman Universe, The Hammer Strikes, Tom Panneries, Two True Freaks, Vi Brasiliam, and Willie Yarbrough. Woohoo! Awesome. Thank you, everybody. We really sincerely appreciate those. Now, we are at the portion of the show where we give out Yellow Dot Awards. These are awards for people that went above and beyond to either promote the show, do something involving Who's Who, or just are really great fans of Who's Who. Now, I realize Yellow Dots may seem a bit archaic at this point in history where we are now with the annuals, but you know what? (laughs) We're going to stick with it, though, because that is the classic system. So uh, the first Yellow Dot Award is going to go to our buddy Diablo Frank, believe it or not, because he sent in across Twitter, goodness gracious, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of tweets featuring sales figures that he somehow, uh, I don't know, maybe embezzled. I don't know if that's the right term or not, from Capital City Distribution and uh, basically saying how many copies they ordered or, or sell through, whichever, probably ordered, uh, and gives you just kind of an idea of where things were. So I'll give you, I, I put together sort of a chart, and you can kind of see the who's who starting off uh, how strong it was and how sales continued to decline and, and, and went down. So just to give you some picture, I'm going to – there's a lot of numbers here, folks. So I'm just going to kind of cherry-pick bits and pieces, but to give you sort of a picture, it starts off with who's who um, – Definitive Director of DC Universe, issue number three, which came out in May 1985. And according to Capital City Distribution, now keep in mind, this is only one distributor and not even the biggest one. Diamond really was probably the biggest at this point, but uh, and newsstands. So this isn't an accurate representation of how many were sold. It just sort of by comparison gives you a better picture. So anyway, under, at Capital City, issue number three sold about 35, 36,000 copies. And, um, and by comparison, New Teen Titans was on issue eight, and they sold about the same uh, – I'm sorry, uh, they sold 28,000 copies. So who's who at this point was outselling the New Titans, which is pretty amazing. But you get to something like Uncanny X-Men, and they were selling almost 50,000 copies compared to who's who's 36. So it's quite a difference. And uh, when you really look at the picture, I did some quick math on it. <clears throat> and Capital City, like I looked at uh, Just League of America, their numbers were pretty small. But if you compare their total monthly circulation to how much Capital City was doing, it's a very small percentage of the market Capital City had. But again, it gives you just like a bit of a microcosm here. Going through some of these again, in July 1985, Who's Who issue number five sold about 30,000 copies, whereas Crisis on Infinite Earths number four sold 44,000 copies. So it wasn't selling as much as Crisis at that point, but uh, you know it still was – Pretty, pretty healthy. Then you look at something like Secret Wars 2. Dude, this is crazy. Okay. Crisis number four sold 44,000. Secret Wars 2, issue number one, sold 85,000 copies. Almost three times as many of as who's who. That's crazy. That comic's no good, man. Nope. Anyway. August 1985, Who's Who issue number five uh, sold about 29,000 copies. By comparison, ElfQuest number one, remember that book? From Epic uh, sold about uh, 23,000, so about 5,000 difference. Get to September 1985, Who's Who issue number seven was at 27,000, and Detective Comics uh, was – this is amazing. Okay, so Who's Who is, is pushing about 27,000 copies. Detective Comics barely pushing 6,500. Wow. 
Mm. Could you imagine a time when Batman was like such a low seller? With Squadron Supreme, number one, is selling 24,000, just shy of what Who's Who numbers are. So, in the same month. Absolutely nuts. October 85, Who's Who, volume uh, 8, was uh, selling about 25,000. And by comparison, Star Wars, number 100, not even 10,000 copies. Oh, oh my gosh. My, can you imagine that? <laughs> I, I can't. I can't. Not even 10,000 copies. Um December 1985, Who's Who issue number 10 sold 22,000. Marvel Saga sold 27,000. Wow. And I like to think of those two together because, uh, again, I always say if you really wanted to sit down and read a whole bunch of really long comics, Marvel Saga and Who's Who was the way to go in the 80s. Tell you, why don't we jump forward a bit here to, let's see. Oh, here we go. Here's a good one. February 86, Who's Who issue number 12 sold about 21,000. And Aquaman number one, this would be the 1986 camo suit, Neil Posner and Craig Hamilton, only sold 13,000 by comparison. Uh, a little bit less than half of what Who's Who was selling. That's amazing. That's weird because that book was sort of remarked on as having been like a brisk seller. So that's weird. That, that doesn't. It could, well, keep in mind this isn't new, this doesn't represent newsstands. Doesn't show no. the full distribution. Yeah, this is true. just what Capital was able to distribute. So, true. and the comic market was pretty small back then. You know, I'm sorry, the direct market was. So then, who's who? Um, this is this is also interesting. Who's who? Issue number thirteen was about twenty thousand copies. Okay, Crisis on Infinite Earths number twelve, the final issue. So this is everything's been leading to this for a year. This is the big deal. Forty-two thousand, double what Who's Who was selling at this point. Secret Wars two, issue number nine, which was also the final issue, sold more than Crisis, forty-eight thousand copies. That's just a crime, man. That's just somebody should be locked up over that. All right, you know what? We're just going to do one or two more here. Who's Who uh, issue number? I wish I could remember who, what characters were in each of these, but anyway, who, Who's Who issue number fourteen sold twenty thousand copies. Secret Origins number one. Do you, so let's do prices right. Do you think it was higher or lower than Who's Who? Uh, higher. Lower. Wow. 16,800. Shocking. So. Not a good start. I know. Well, surprisingly. So. All right. Well, I, you know, I think we'll uh, we'll close this out. Maybe we'll find a way to make this available for everyone. I mean, it's out there. If you go to Double Frank's Twitter feed, which is Commander Blanks with an X, I mean, he posted all this stuff out there. It's fascinating. If you're into numbers and stuff, it's really interesting. And for those of you who are not into numbers, I apologize for the last five minutes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Great way to end the series. I, well, hey, come on. No, we're not done yet. I know. We got a little not more to done go. yet. We got to give out another Yellow Dot Award to Mike LaCroix of the Canadian uh, Military History Podcast. He was going through his long boxes and he found a backing board that he uses as a spacer. And what he found on there was this sheet of paper. And he says, What I used to do with a new issue of Who's Who would come out, I would see, I would, um, I would see how many entries there were for each hero or villain and which home city or base of operations they came from. And he kept a list. He shared a photo of us with us. It is a, it's a sheet of paper that has been typed upon, and it lists the teams from who's who, uh, issue number 10. It gives you, like, what, what letters it covers. And he typed up all the teams. He then typed up uh, their home cities, like Gypsy is from Detroit, Michigan, and New York City and Happy Harbor. Harlequins from Gotham City and and in Los Angeles, California, Earth Two. Oh my gosh! And the and I got to tell you, I mean, there's anal retentive, and then there's Mike Lacroix. And um, I, besides that, dude, hats off to you, buddy, because I kept so many lists just like this as a kid, where I would yeah have a whole column of like, here's Earth Two characters, here's Earth One characters, here's Earth S characters. So. I'm in love with what you did here, and I love the fact that you typed it. He says all I needed was a typewriter, paper, scissors, liquid paper, and a glue stick. 
<laughs> so congratulations, Mike. And um, oh, Mike, oh, you, you, I'm sorry, Mike also did another thing. He sent us a photo of this incredible poster, a who's who poster. I've never even seen this. Remember, we talked about when the series started uh, back when I think I was in third grade when we started doing this, Rob, the show, Rob. Um, there was like a there were ads for like who is the Atomic Knight and who is Abner Gazer Rath and and, and, and Stanley. Um, and here's a poster, an image I never saw. It's the same kind of ad, but it's Batlash. And he says, who is he? And he has these checkbox for Bat Masterson, Batlash, and uh, Ace the Bathound. And it's a, for these answer, for answers to this and others, read Who's Who, all new art from Comic-Dom's fan, finest. And it's a, it's a poster for uh, Who's Who using Batlash with a bunch of yellow dots. So uh, he sent us a picture of that, and that's awesome. So between those two, Mike LaCroix, Diablo Frank, congratulations. You have earned yourselves a yellow dot award each. Woo! Now, I want to take a second. Uh, because of that poster, again, Batlash, yellow dots, who is he? Uh, we got to give a shout-out to our good buddy, Zoom Yukonori, because it's time for his segment, Zoom Yukonori's Addendum to the Definitive Director of the DC Universe. He sent something to Rob and I digitally as a congratulations for finishing the classic who's who. Uh, it is... That same house ad of Batlash, except he's done one with Rob as Aqua Rob and me as Fire Shag. And it says, let's see, who is he? And it has Rob's picture there. And it says, is he Lex Luthor, Aqua Rob, or Rob Lowe? <laughs> For the answers to this and other questions, listen to Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, honoring DC Comics Who's Who series from the 80s, 1980s and 90s, one page at a time. Hosted by Rob Kelly and the Irredeemable Shag, part of the Firewater Podcast Network. This is amazing, dude. This is so cool. You're a poster, Rob. What's great is I am now in the shape that he drew me in when he first did this drawing. Um, that's that's what I look like now. Really? Yeah. You're that ripped? Yeah. Wow. I got uh, a lot done this summer. So am I. Um <laughs> With the puffy sleeves, at least my arms are my arms droop like that now. So, uh, and mine is am I Reander, which is hysterical because that's Starfire's little brother. I think he did that just to make me mad. Fire Shag or last one Norville Rogers. Who's Norville Rogers, Rob? I forget. You'll find out in an upcoming Saturday morning uh, uh, Fever episode. Oh, that's oh wow. Oh geez. Okay. That, well, that's that's, Sha- that's Shaggy's real name. That's right. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. So our thanks to Zoom. And finally, he gave us uh, – actually, I'm going to ask you to walk us through this, Rob. He gave us a Zoom's Who entry, our last one here. Uh, it is Lady Viper. Yes. Uh, she. First of all, the artwork is beautiful. You'll see it on the site. It's just gorgeous. It's actually one of, I think, his most finely illustrated. The line work is really amazing that he drew this. This. Uh, she's a character from Detective Comics, number 514. I don't – I thought I bought the comic, but I have absolutely no memory of this character at all. She's basically a half-woman, half-snake. And she joined in a – she's a bad guy. She traveled in a sideshow as the amazing snake woman, and she took on uh, Batgirl. And we see in the surprint that uh, Zoom was nice enough to provide, we see her, like, trying to, you know, strangle Batgirl using her snake tail and stuff. And she's got – she's wearing, like, a metal bra – and she's got this flowing uh, yellow hair, but she's got this demonic face. And then there's this close-up, and then there's this other thing with the um, the, the snake god uh, statuette, and you've got the forked tongue and the moon. He even created a little uh, logo, and, and in the logo is like kind of the, the, the snake scales. It's really quite a nice piece, as is usual for Zoom. And, and this is one of those crazy stories where Batgirl got um, – didn't Batgirl get transformed in this one? I think so. I'm pretty sure, yeah. I think this is the one where she got transformed, which is just bat 
crap crazy. Now, I, I noticed something in uh, on, on this page that I think he must have done just to tickle your fancy. Um, looks like uh, what's what's that zipatone or whatever all over this thing. Yes, it does have that tone. It does have that tonal effect. Yes, it's, it, yeah. this is one of the the line work here is like a little more detailed than what Zoom normally does, or just a slightly different style, a little more sketchy. It looks wonderful. There's like a down cast on her rib cage, which looks mm-hmm. really cool. It's it's really it's really quite remarkable. He's able to sort of change his style. I mean, the inking is really highly detailed here. It's 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 great. I mean, Zoom's Zoom stuff is always fantastic, but this one shows. Like we've always seen what an accomplished mimic he is because mm-hmm. he can replicate other styles. But uh, man, he the guy's just so talented. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I did confirm. Yes, this is the one where. Um, Batgirl actually got transformed to half snake. Yes. So (laughs) I'm sure it's one of Stella's favorites. (laughs) Well, our thanks uh, to zoom. That is absolutely fantastic. And folks, that is going to do it. We are going to close the books on traditional who's who comic book form. Well, um, now remember, leave your comments on the website. Rob, Rob, what's that website? Firewaterpodcast.com. We need your comments from this issue and we need your uh, information on how you organize your loose leaves because the feedback from this episode will be read in about six months on the first episode of Who's Who in the DC Universe Loose Leaf Edition Episode 1. Woo! I can't wait. But in the meantime, for those six months, you're going to have something to tide you over. Rob, what are they going to hear next? Next up is going to be Who's Who in Star Trek featuring me and some special guests going over the listings in the first volume of that two-volume series. Woohoo! Awesome. That's going to be fantastic. I look forward to hearing it, and I look forward to having the time off, so not having to talk to you for a while. Uh, man, two months apart and two weeks together, and it's already too much. <laughs> so, folks, you can find my friend Rob uh, at AquamanShrine.net. You can find him on Twitter and Facebook. Which turned 10 today, I should That's say. That's right. Congratulations. And they revealed the Mara costume from uh, the Justice League movie for your birthday. Big day. Big day. It's the first time one of the uh, DC movie costumes looks better than uh, really good cosplay, so I'm very impressed. Um, so that's AquamanShrine.net It's also on Facebook and Twitter under the same handle You can also find him as Pod Dylan, Film and Water Pod Treasury Comics Your Mama, all kinds of different Twitter handles Rob's out there uh, You can find me on Facebook and Twitter as Firestorm Fan or Once Upon a Geek and uh, or Justice League Podcast uh, Justice League International Podcast and uh, I think that's going to do it for now um, Until next time Who's next? Who's next? Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hedrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. Hold your horses. No one asked for more help. This whole trip might just prove the kids shouldn't eat nachos before bed. Peanut butter sandwiches. How did you... What, do you go through my trash? Please.
I go through everyone's trash. 